uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. my fellow galactic travelers and welcome back to planet eight this is your mission commander larry speaking to you from our hidden base chief engineer bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling planet eight in our orbital spy satellite is reconnaissance officer karen and on this episode of planet eight we will be discussing all things spider-man being that this is also our 50th episode, we have some very special guests on the program that we were able to talk to. But before we get to that, let's kick it up to the satellite. Karen, let us know what you got about Spider-Man. Well, Larry, thanks for kicking it up to the satellite once again. Uh, you know, Spider-Man, what can we say about Spider-Man? Spider-Man, Spider-Man? Does whatever a spider can. <laughs> you know, of course, Spider-Man started in the comics. We have to go back to the comics once again, even though right. he's a movie star, game star, cartoon star. Uh, Spider-Man was one of the early characters to come out of the Marvel Universe uh, in Amazing Fantasy 15 back in August of 1962. So... Mm. Uh, unlike some of the other characters that we think of, it wasn't a Stanley and Jack Kirby creation, but a Stanley and Steve Ditko creation. So, Spider-Man from the very beginning had a slightly different look than some of the other characters because of Ditko's art being uh, not as heroic looking, maybe as what we were used to with Jack Kirby's art. Right. You know, so Spidey starting out being, you know, this nerdy teenager, a guy who, uh, you know, didn't quite fit in Peter Parker with everybody else. And I think, you know, they had this great idea, right, with this this character who really, I think, epitomizes what Marvel uh, was all about at that time, was, you know, sort of the outcast, the guy who uh, was sort of a normal guy in a lot of ways, but maybe not 
the superheroic fantasy that most of the DC characters were, where really they were, you know, pretty successful in their civilian lives, just like they were in their superhero lives. Right. You know, we could relate to Peter, right? Because he was struggling um, in his personal life with, uh, you know, his Aunt May, who seemed to always be sick or couldn't pay the rent. Then he had girl troubles. He was trying to do well in school all the while trying to be Spider-Man. So it was a character, I think, that people could really, certainly teenagers could relate to. And from the very beginning, it was what, you know, separated him from all of these other mainstream superheroes people were were used to. Right. And, and then, of course, uh, after Steve Ditko left about 39 issues into the the series, then uh, John Romita Sr. came on, and I think that the look of his art was very different, very polished and streamlined, but I think a lot of people appreciated that look, and a lot of people of a certain age like us might associate that with Spider-Man even more. And so, you know, he went on to become even more popular, and I think we could talk about a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, one of it is uh, the great supporting cast he had. Oh, Yeah. So, like, I'm sure you guys could rattle off different names, right? Like, J. Jonah Jameson comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the newspaper publisher, um, his Aunt May, of course, the different girls in his life, Gwen Stacy, uh, his first girlfriend, of course, who dies tragically, uh, Mary Jane Watson, uh, his friend Harry Osborn, who is actually the son of his greatest villain, the Green Goblin. Right. Flat- you know, Flash Thompson. Wow. So, yeah, so he's got all these great characters who surround them, and those change, and, you know, new people are added and people leave over time, but uh, his supporting cast was always really important, so it was almost like a soap opera, right? <laughs> you would mm-hmm. get get involved with all these different characters, and that was another thing that made him seem more real and accessible to people. Karen, I had a quick question on the on the comic book because I, I was, my nephew was asking me some questions about Spider-Man. He, he thought he started off in the comic strip and then from the newspaper, they, they made the book. And I was like, no, no, no. The, you know, the, the comic book came first. How many issues did it take before Spider-Man got his own titled book? Oh, because well, this caught Marvel by surprise, right? I mean, it was like, all right. They kind of they kind of dumped him in. I think it was either the last or next to the last issue of Amazing Fantasy 15, mm-hmm. and then um, decided to go ahead and put him in his own book. Um, okay. So yeah, so I think I think Stan Lee felt pretty. I think it was a concept he was pretty uh, felt pretty strongly about. Um, but yeah, they for whatever reason with. You know, they had a whole bunch of titles. They were, even at that point in time, they were kind of um, making the transition from all the horror and sci-fi titles of the 50s. And you got to remember, this is the early 60s. And so they were trying to bring the superhero back in. So they were transitioning from those titles into the superhero titles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they put him in there. I mean, for years, they still had, like, when they had Captain America and Iron Man, they had them in a book called Tales of Suspense, which was a holdover from those mm. days, you know. So, right. yeah, they just transitioned him in. And then as far as the newspaper strip, I think that started in the 70s. 
Oh, okay. um, right. and actually ran up until just recently, as far as I know. I think, so, I think it was last year they, or maybe no, I think it was last year they stopped the yeah the newspaper. Yeah, sure. well, I, I remember it when it started. It was uh, what Stanley and John Romita Senior, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and they then, did it for quite a while. Um, so yeah, that you know he was able to successfully transfer over into the newspapers. Um, and I know one thing we had we had kind of talked about, and Bob had done a, a post on Facebook was about the villains. So yeah. Spy, Spidey has such a great rogues gallery, right? Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has their favorites. You know, everybody could talk about. I mean, for me. I always liked the lizard, but I think that's because that was he was in one of the first books I ever saw. But mm. then I also liked some of the more off the wall villains like Morbius or um, oh, yeah. you know the Rhino. It was funny because like some of his villains migrated to other books, like the Kingpin went over to Daredevil, and everybody thinks of him as a Daredevil villain, right? You know, or the Rhino went to the Hulk after a while, stuff like that. I don't know what what do you guys who are your favorite. Spider-Man villains. I got a chief. I have to basically agree with a lizard, but also Mysterio. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah, think, Mysterio. Uh, I I thought it was funny that uh, you know Spider-Man's villains and nowadays, I mean, I guess some of Batman's villains were not in the peak of uh, physical shape, but you have like Doctor Octopus, which is this overweight, uh, overweight scientist. Uh, the vulture was, you know, a guy in his 60s. <laughs> Whereas you, you have like modern day villains and they're like all these like, you know, physiques of the rock. Um, yeah, I, I like I like Dr. Octopus. I think um, in the Tobey Maguire film, uh, which we'll talk about later in the podcast, um, I noticed that they kind of. And actually, I'll, I'll wait till we get into the film because that, that's a point to make about the film. But Doc Ock was my favorite. Uh, Mysterio. Um, one of, uh, I don't know why, but I really liked the Molten Man, too. I thought he was very oh, yeah. cool visually on, on the page. Mm-hmm. But he has a great rogues gallery. He really does. Sure. And, you know, one of the things about um, reading Spider-Man, if you came in at a certain age, like I did, and I and you guys were all fairly close in age. So when I started reading, there was not only Amazing Spider-Man available, but there was also Marvel Tales. So I was getting to read the old reprints of, you know, the old Spider-Man books, which could be kind of confusing at some times because it was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And what's this? But, but <laughs> right. pretty quick, quickly figured out, you know, oh, this is an older story. So I got to read all the John Romita and Stanley stories. And then also Marvel Team Up was put out in 72. So I, I was just, that was just about maybe a little early for me to be reading, but it was still out there. So you had those books. And then eventually a few years later, they put out Spectacular Spider-Man. So there was like four different places Right. It was maybe Spider-Man overkill, but you could be getting all this different Spider-Man exposure. Well, I think right. at one point, there was basically a Spider-Man title every week. Probably. Be- yeah. be- between Amazing and Spectacular and uh, Team Up. And there was another one. I can't remember what it was called, though. But yeah, there was like four or five books. So you'd have, you know, one every week. 
uh, you know, I think it was Team Up. It was one of the first stories I read with Spider-Man. And he he was teamed up with the man thing. And it was the most bizarre team up ever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that stuck in my mind, too, over the years. And it was funny because Marvel team up when they they started it, they original the original plan was they were going to alternate the lead between Spider-Man and the Human Torch. So right. one or one or the other was going to be the lead and then they'd alternate guest stars. But, you know, Spidey was just way too popular. And so he he wound up taking over the book. But, uh, yeah, some of those Marvel team ups were, you know, some of the most uh, interesting, fun stories. And usually they sometimes they were uh, multiple issue stories, but most of the times they were like one and done. Right. And uh, they could do a lot of really crazy things like Man Thing, you know, yeah. or Red Sonia or whatever. Um, Some of the team ups worked better than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. But it was always fun, right? Because you, you'd get like Spider Man and Thor, and like these are two characters you don't think would really work well together, but, you know, they might find a way to really have them play off of each other. Uh, and because of Spider Man's personality, sort of that, you know, smart aleck kind of thing. It, it allows him, I think, to get away with a lot with other characters. So, right. right. Well, that's why I was so excited with him coming into the MCU finally, because I thought, okay, here's where we'll get a bunch of team ups and things. And they really, they've gone Iron Man heavy, but, you know, it'd be nice to see him mix it up with some of the others. Yeah. I think we'll probably see more of that as it goes along. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, I think. You know, Spider-Man is one of those characters that, you know, a lot of people relate to. And I think that's why he's been so incredibly successful at Marvel. But I think they do have an issue with um, he should be a young guy. And that's where I think they got into trouble is when he started getting older and like getting married and all that stuff, which may be why, you know, they brought Miles Morales in, so now you do have that young guy who can have the same kind of problems and issues that Peter Parker had when he first started out as Spider-Man. Because um, it's kind of, um, I think that's what we, you know, what makes him fun, you know, when he's doing all the wisecracking and stuff, um, is knowing that, you know, this is a young guy having a good time. When he puts on the mask, he can be more carefree and and just, you know, enjoy being Spider-Man. Um, right. And I do I do enjoy Miles Morales, although I will admit I haven't really been keeping up with uh, the new comics quite as much as uh, I used to. I, so. I have to admit uh, as well, I have not been keeping up with the current uh, comics. Uh, may I ask, Karen, and I'll, I'll certainly share, not Bob, if you care to, what was it that kind of took you out of the Spider-Man books? Uh, I think, you know, I stopped really reading right after Civil War around there. I stopped reading regularly. And I think it was just kind of the sense that um, maybe Spidey was not, you know, the character had just changed so much. Mm-hmm. Um, especially... I think it's just that idea that, you know, it's not the same character anymore. You don't want things to be stagnant all the time, but certainly um, 
I think Marvel had wanted to have too many things like eat your cake and have it too kind of thing. They, they had, you know, had him grow up, but then they had him in this marriage and then they seemed unhappy with that. So they did all this weird stuff to get him out of the marriage. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. Why didn't you just have him get divorced or something? (laughs) No, I do a deal with the devil and all this crazy stuff that they went through. You know, it just seemed really over the top. And um, yeah, I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way, I guess. Um, That's exactly what drew me out, buddy. Okay. The whole Memphisto thing. It was like you undid all this, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, he made the choice to unmask himself because of Civil War. He made the, you know, his relationship was whatever with with Mary Jane and, you know, the whole Ben Parker clone. Uh, You know, all right. But then it's like, do a deal with the devil and, you know, eh, Yeah, it just didn't seem like the, well, and I could say that about a lot of the characters, the way they're written, you know, and and I'm, it's probably because, well, they're not writing for me anymore, so I understand that. And there's still, <laughs> right, you know, a ton right. of great old stories I can go back to and enjoy, and that's fine, you know, I, life goes on. Um, and I'll, I can always look at, you know, these old comics and enjoy them. And then, you know, I, I do buy some stuff occasionally, and I like kind of what they've done with Miles Morales. I like... Uh, uh, who's the Ms. Marvel Kamala Khan that's interesting and some of the other stuff they're doing um, but uh, anyway we'll we'll talk more about like some of the new things they've done in the movies and stuff later on which I think oh, yes. gone the right direction but I mean I just think the Spider-Man character if you froze him in amber what people expect is like a teenager with a lot of problems who goes out and does the right thing regardless and is kind of, you know, enjoying life when he's Spider-Man and then struggling with life when he's not. Yeah, see, for me, I think I stopped before you guys did because I kind of stopped, you know, they, they had, was it Ben Riley come back and claim that Peter was a clone and that, you know, yeah, it was yeah. the, the real oh, yeah. Peter that got thrown down the smokestack or whatever. And that Spider-Man. whole storyline, you know, and then for a while there, it's like, Peter was not Spider-Man. He was out of the comic and Ben Riley was Spider-Man. And then right. and then there were like a million Spider-Man clones, that whole story. And I think yeah, that went over the top. At that point yeah. I'm like, "Ah, uh, you know." And they they got to the end of that and then I think they rebooted Amazing Spider-Man back to 1 again. They've done that a few times. Yeah. Right. But that was like, that yeah, they booted it back books. to 1 and I'm like, "Well, that's a good time for me to stop then." Yeah, that's pretty much yeah. at one point in time it was the clone uh you know saga then they had like the hulk patrol then the thor gang and i was like yeah you know what i'm out i'm, I'm good thanks for the memories which is funny because i'm much more tolerant of changes that they make to the character in the movies than i am in print which is kind of weird hmm. yeah well they kind but of I, have I think to i'm probably the same hmm well, you know, and one of the things I thought was interesting, Karen, is that um, I, I myself personally, I was also a little more tolerant of the change in his look. You know, the changing to the black costume didn't really um, bother me as much as, you know, changing up his story and, and, you know, the deal with Memphisto and whatever. There were a couple of different costume changes throughout his his comic book career. Um, was it the contest? Champions, where they gave him the black suit 
first or am I getting my balls right. during was, the whole uh, Secret Wars? The thing. Secret War. Secret yeah. War, that's what it was. Okay. How would you guys feel about the uh, the change in the costumes and whatever? I think he I changed a whole lot less than most heroes. I think his his ah, uniform's pretty iconic. True. Just like Superman's is pretty iconic. You know, Superman right. loses the trunks once in a while and then he gets them back and whatever. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but Spider Man, I mean, yeah, they went with a black suit, which I thought at the time I thought, well, you know, that's pretty cool. And then they, you know, obviously that whole led to the whole Venom thing. And so then he's back, yeah. you know, to his regular costume. And, you know, so I don't think there was that many big changes that it really bothered me other than other than the black suit. Yeah, and like, I liked the whole storyline. So I didn't uh, really freak out about that. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. about you, Darren? No, I assumed it would come and go. Um, I mean, I've always loved the red and blue suit. So, uh, yeah. you know, and, and the different artists have, have, you know, changed it a little bit here and there. Uh, the, the one thing I was thinking about that I really struck, stuck with me, because probably because it was one of the first issues I got as a kid, was uh, when he uh, fought Morbius and he took some sort of serum and then he grew an uh, extra pair of arms. Oh, yeah, he had the six, yeah. six arms. <laughs> I mean, it's just totally ridiculous, but it was, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, I think there was even a what if where he kept the, the extra pair of arms, but. Uh, well, it was, it was two look. pair, right? Because didn't he have like, it was like he's supposed to be like a Spider-Man, so he had like uh, three sets of arms and two legs. So I was like. Eight. Did he have four more arms? I don't know. Yeah, Something it was like crazy. That, um, it was an interesting look. But then he didn't he turn into like man spider for a while? I, th- I think the arms only lasted like an issue. I don't think it went on too there, long. There was, there, there, there was, was a long storyline story where he became like man spider, where he was more spider than man. Well, maybe that was a later one that I didn't get. But uh, yeah, he's he hasn't changed too much. I do remember getting the Spider-Man 2099 book, uh, which had... Uh, oh, yes. M- Miguel. Now I can't remember the name of the who was the guy who was Spider-Man, but that was a really different look, but you know, it wasn't our, it wasn't Peter Parker Spider-Man. So again, it was like, Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, the 2099 didn't really go anywhere. They occasionally bring those characters back to do things with them. Uh, and he was, in the he was at the end stuff. of Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. The Spider-Verse thing. That was funny. But yeah, it seems like whenever he's had a different costume, it's been like a different person in the costume. Like Ben Riley has his costume, and Miles Morales has his costume, and mm-hmm. you know Miguel has his, and you know whoever else. Well, you know, I, I guess the changes that I, as I think about it, probably in the animated series, he had more changes to his costumes than in the books. I could be. I think he was pretty true. I mean, Ultimate Spider-Man, the the red webbing doesn't go all the way down into his gloves. It, like, makes a point on his shoulder or something. But, but pretty much everything is pretty much the same, I think. That Miles Morales, uh, the black and red outfit is pretty sharp. Yeah. And that's fine because Oh, that's I Miles, agree. You know? I really like that look. I probably wouldn't like it on Peter, but on Miles, yeah, it's great. 
Do you guys like when Spider-Man is depicted with the webbing under the arms or do you like the no webbing look? I like some webbing under the arms, but I mean, there's some issues like even Ditko like way overdid it. Just got I, I like the webbing under the arms. I, I, it's kind of iconic to me. And of course, they're doing it in the movies now because he can glide with it or whatever. But yeah, now he's got like a super suit. So before he was just a kid in leotards. Do you guys have a favorite uh, Spider-Man artist? Uh, Romita Sr. Yeah, I think I'll I, I go back and forth, but I think Ramita Senior for me as well. I, I do like the Ditko look, though. I it, to me, it just kind of harkens back to his, you know, where he, you know, Spider Man started out. But but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with I'll go with. Uh, How about I think he was more of a journeyman, but like Sal Buscema. You know, Sal gets a lot of um, flack, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who drew so many Marvel characters and, and did them, you know, pretty well. And uh, certainly he also had to deal with being John Buscema's brother, you know, well, so that's true. no easy thing. Um, but yeah, I thought he did a decent job on Spider-Man. He did a lot of issues of Marvel team-up, but I think he really did well on Hulk. Um, oh yeah. What about you, Karen? Who's your uh, favorite artist? Yeah, Romita Senior. When I visualize Spider-Man in my head, I see Romita Senior's art in in my brain. Um, just from you know the time period when I I grew up, uh, he was, you know, he was drawing. I was I was reading those old Marvel tales, so I was seeing that he was doing a lot of the promotional art. He was still doing some covers. I think when I was reading Spider-Man, it was either Gil Kane or Ross Andrew who was actually drawing the book, and Jerry Conway was writing when I started reading. See, um, Ross Andrew's okay. I was never a fan of Gil Kane, though. Well, he's certainly an acquired taste. There was a lot of those weird up-the-nose kind of shots yeah, yeah. with Gil Kane. Um, and everybody was very, like, sinewy. So... He's, he's got his fans. Um, I've gotten so I like him more now than I used to. But, yeah, I, when I was a kid, I wasn't a Gil Kane fan. Well, I should always put a, put a plug in. There was a book, and I, I'm spacing on the name of the book. But it was a hardcover novel where Spider-Man went up against the lizard. And there was, like, illustrations, like chapter art illustrations with uh, art by Ron Lim. And uh, inks by Keith Aiken, who does Sci-Fi Japan with me. Keith did a lot of inking for Marvel and stuff in the day. Oh. So nice. We were all talking one time about problems at work. We're like, oh, I got this problem, that problem. And his problem was at, at work was it was at night and he was like doing comic panels and the, the really thin pen that he used to make Spider-Man's webs had run out of ink and he had to like run all over looking for another pen but it's like uh, some people have worse work problems than others all right that story ended with a dud <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> shall we move on to tv 
Well, let's go. To, yeah, let's go into other uh, media that Spider-Man has uh, made appearances in. Um, television. Let's kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob. Uh, what do you have to share with us with regards to uh, Webhead's television appearances? Well, there's been a lot, so I'll try to keep this under uh, seven or eight hours. But uh, <laughs> of course, it started in 1967 with Spider-Man that was by Gantry Lawrence Animation. And they were mostly responsible previously for the Marvel superheroes, which was Captain America, Iron Man, Submariner, Thor, and Hulk, which were more kind of cut out comic book pages sliding across the screen with the mouse moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were mostly known more for uh, their theme songs than their actual animation. But I was thinking the other day that those were actually precursors to like the web comics we have now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyways, so when they got the rights for Spider-Man, they did a fuller animation. It was still limited. They still reused a lot of shots and reused a lot of cells. But, uh, you know, it had the, the iconic theme song that everybody remembers. And uh, right. it was just, I don't know, to this day, I, I still love it. But uh, Gantry Lawrence actually went bankrupt after the first season. And uh, the show was handed over to another company. So it was handed over to Krantz Films. And the uh, production was taken over by Ralph Bakshi. So that's the one where you have... He reused a lot of the cells, but it was mostly non-Marvel villains and... The psychedelic skies and the dark backgrounds. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Um, and they also went to the uh, KPM artist kind of library background music. Because in the first season, and they had all, all of Spidey's villains and everything, Ray Ellis did the soundtrack. And it was that really cool kind of jazz soundtrack. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, when they got, yeah, when they got to. Uh, so the Ralph Bakshi episodes, he was using the uh, the stock KPM artist catalog. So you can look and you'll, you know, I've seen or heard Spider-Man music. And then, of course, it's not Spider-Man. It's library music. But if you want to call it Spider-Man music, I've heard it pop up in uh, Wanted Dead or Alive, the old Steve McQueen Western. Uh, some of it pops mm. up in Night of the Living Dead. Um, this pops up in an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. I mean, it's it's library music, so anyone can use it. Well, but, I, uh, I wish there was a CD of of that music, the, the actual music that they used. The closest I ever found to it was um, the CD Moxie. I guess the guy's name is Vaughn Smith. And uh, real quick side story here, Bob. We used to go to Monster Palooza before the the shelter in place. Karen and I were driving around LA. We had a extra day before the convention started and we were listening to the soundtrack to uh, the Omega man. You're driving around downtown LA. What else would you listen to? And I was so happy. I'd found this music for the Spider-Man uh, cartoon and I, I played it and, and you know, it's, it's based on that music. It's their cover of it. And Karen's like, what are we listening to? It sounds like stripper music from the sixties. <laughs> Bob, I'm, I'm going to send you a copy of that CD. Maybe oh, I have you can it. put it I have in the tail end of this episode. 
and, and now whenever I listen to the music, I don't think Spider-Man. I think of like, you know, some woman with a big boa, you know, dancing in a, a bubble bath on stage. Anyway, I, I digress. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, I do have the CD and you're stealing okay. my Thunderman. So <laughs> cause I was going to talk sorry. a little bit about the, about the music because I love the Ray Ellis soundtrack. Oh, yeah. But yeah. It's, um, it's, it's very hard to find. I did find sort of a fan made one. But every once in a while in the background, you'll hear a couple of web thwips or you'll hear a Spider-Man leap or, you know, whatever. But I mean, it is the music. It's good enough for now. The, the theme song you can find everywhere. Uh, there was a, oh, yeah. a release called Saturday Morning Cartoons where the Spider-Man theme was covered by the Ramones. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have that. The first Spider-Man movie, Aerosmith, covered it at the end. Yeah, I think it was like Spider-Man 2 or something Michael Buble did a version and if you go on iTunes or anywhere and look up KPM Artists they have a two volume CD set called Spider Sounds and that's all the music I was describing that was all library music uh. that shows up in a bunch of different shows and movies and whatever so you can get all that real, real easy it's just the Ray Ellis music that's the iconic stuff you can't it's really hard to find but uh, yeah so Ralph Bakshi took over at the time he was mostly known for remember the Mighty Heroes yeah right Diaper Man and Strong Man and all that so uh, and he went on to do the the really bizarre Mickey uh, Mighty Mouse in the 80s but anyway um, you know what's weird, Bob? I, I remember it because, you know, you'd watch it. It's like, oh, this, you know, the rhinos in this episode of Spider-Man or, or the goblin. And then, you know, a new episode would come on. And like you said, they had that weird cosmic, you know, sky. And then it's like Dr. Noah Body. And it's like, yeah. what? Who's Dr. <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> Where'd that come from? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because at the same time that uh, – that Krantz Films was doing Spider-Man. They were also doing Rocket Robin Hood. Remember that? That's another no, t- another cartoon, Rocket thing. Robin Hood. And there's an episode of Rocket Robin Hood called uh, Dementia 5. And they huh. go into this other dimension with these weird one-eyed robed creatures. And, you know, it's all just like someone on LSD doing a cartoon. And <laughs> there's like endless staircases and trippy backgrounds and all this weird stuff. Well, they took all of that, all the backgrounds, everything, and used it for an episode of Spider-Man called Revolt in the Fifth Dimension, where Spidey's sent into the Dementia 5 universe. And it's, you know, almost the exact same as Rocket Robin Hood with the addition of a lot of swinging. (laughs) But... uh, but yeah, so the, the 67 Spider-Man, I could go on and on about that. As just, Oh, yeah. Well, you know, for our generation, it was the iconic Spider-Man cartoon. And I'll get into more of that later on. But uh, as we got out of that, the next incarnation was actually 1977. And this is when CBS had... Uh, the Reb Brown Captain America and I think it was just before the Hulk started up with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno and they did a uh, Spider-Man series with Nicholas Hammond as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man 
Right. Now, Nicholas Hammond was mostly Peter Parker because when it was Spider-Man, unless it was him standing and talking, it was always a stunt guy running around. Mm. And uh, that was kind of known because they were doing a lot of wire work where instead of like Batman and Robin would basically walk along a sideways set and then they tilt the camera so it looked like they were scaling up a wall. Well, in Spider-Man, they actually used cables and pulled them up the wall. So you'd have an actual building and the stuntman would be climbing up the building pulled by these cables. So uh, that was probably the, the standout of that series. But <laughs> they did do a pilot and that was followed by a, uh, a series. But it was never really put into a... Uh, a regular time slot or even a regular day or even a regular season. Um, you know, you've got uh, the first season, you know, you had a pilot episode in the fall of 1977. And I think the interesting thing about that was um, you had Darren Stevens' boss, Larry Tate, played by David White. He played J. Jonah Jameson in that pilot. Uh, for the actual series, they replaced him with another uh, actor named Robert Simon. But uh, they had the pilot in the fall of 77, and then five episodes, that was like the first, quote, season, started in the spring of 78, and then the second season was six episodes, which was split between the fall of 78 and the winter of 79. And then that was pretty much the end of the whole thing. But the ratings were good, but they just never had him on, you know, at a regular... It wasn't like every Friday at 8 o'clock you can see Spider-Man. It was just, oh, hey, look, Spider-Man's on. But there was a final two-hour episode which wrapped the series, and that was, uh, like, in the summer of, of uh, 1980. And uh, Nicholas Hammond, who played Spider-Man, he, he was actually famous for being Frederick Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. And he was Robert in Lord of the Flies. And he's gone on to do other stuff like fine films like Rage in Lake Placid and Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. But you know what movie he was in last year? He played no. Sam Wanamaker in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, which wow. Which was actually a pretty big role. So Quentin Tarantino, as he has liked to do, brought an old TV actor back to be in one of his movies. So yeah, if you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, look for Sam Wanamaker, and it's Spider-Man. So anyways, after that, and kind of during, it's kind of started kind of during it, um, there was a three-year deal between Toei and Marvel, Toei being the production company in Japan, which allowed each other to use each other's characters. Now, a lot there wasn't a lot that came out of that, but on the Japanese side, Toei wanted to make a superhero team based around Captain America. And the idea eventually kind of dropped and morphed into a TV show called Battle Fever J, which included Battle Japan, Battle France, Battle Kenya, Battle Cossack, and Miss America. So Cap didn't quite make it. It was Miss America that uh, they credited to Marvel, basically. But they did do a Spider-Man series. And uh, they decided only to use Spider-Man. None of the characters, not Peter Parker, none of the background story, nothing. Just, just going to use, uh, put a guy in a Spider-Man suit. 
and he was an alien from another planet that came down and protected the Earth, <laughs> battled evil with his car, the GP7, and his giant robot, Leopardon. And uh, despite the differences, though, Stan Lee loved the series, and he praised the special effects and the stunt work. So it later was subtitled and shown on uh, Marvel.com for a few months. And the robot Leopoldon was so popular that Toei, from that point on, decided to put giant robots in all their Super Sentai shows. So when you see the Power Rangers and all their big robots and everything, that was all due to Spider-Man. But it, it had nothing really to do with, like, Spider-Man other than, like, the Spider-Man costume. Although he was right? Spider-Man, and he spun webs and everything else. But, but Stan Lee liked his no poses better. He liked the way he... Uh, he crouched and, and you know, but, acted like Spider-Man, but... He was an alien, right? There, he, yeah. there was no Peter Parker. There nope. was no, like... Nope, nothing. However, oh however, the cool thing is the producer of Into the Spider-Verse, he had put out a thing on his Twitter thing saying that if Into the Spider-Verse made a certain amount of money at the box office... He would put Japanese Spider-Man and the robot in the sequel. <laughs> and he has since said that he will do that. <laughs> so he will be making a comeback. He will be probably in, in Into the Spider-Verse 2 whenever oh that comes God. out. Now, as far as like Marvel side of things, basically all they did, they, sw they swiped, uh, was it Dangard Ace and Combattler V and put them in their Shogun Warriors comics. Oh, and the, the other... Marvel property that Toei did. They did a really good uh, anime movie based on Tomb of Dracula. And that was much more like the comic than, than their Spider-Man <laughs> series was. So as we, as we come back to the West, in 1979, there was not a Spider-Man show, but there was a Spider-Woman cartoon. And that... I remember that. Only lasted, I think, a season. But Spider-Man was in like two episodes of it. Right. But he had this really bizarre, like really deep baritone voice. And it's like, wait, wait, who's in that costume? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so Spider-Woman. But short. I, I like how we go from the Japanese version with the giant robot. But the weird thing was his voice in the other. <laughs> That's right. Hey, I would I would accept the Japanese Spider-Man before I would accept this deep, baritone, <laughs> deep baritone yeah. Peter Parker guy. But... In 1981, Marvel Productions Limited was formed, and uh, they wanted to interest networks in new shows, so they pitched the Spider-Man series loosely based on the 1967 series. So NBC bought the idea, and the series aired for one season, and it features many of Spider-Man's famous foes, with the addition of villains like Doctor Doom and Magneto. And it's basically the same characters. So you've got like Spider-Man and Jane Joe and Jameson and Betty Brant, you know, the same kind of characters that were in the, and of course Aunt May, that were in the 67, but it was updated. And every once in a while you hear a little bit of that Ray Ellis soundtrack pop in there. So that was kind of a, a cool callback. But that only lasts about one season, and then that was kind of morphed into Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which was uh, 
Iceman and Firestar. But it's the same kind of opening. Peter was the same. They probably used a bunch of the same cells. Spider-Man looked the same. And uh, so it was almost a continuation of that 1981 Spider-Man cartoon. Huh. But uh, the interesting thing about Spider-Man and his amazing friends is they had one episode called Origin of the Spider-Friends. And in that one, there was a tech fair, a science fair. And Tony Stark was there showing off his latest crime-fighting computer. But he didn't have his armor. Now, the Beatle shows up and steals the computer and kidnaps Tony Stark. So, Spider-Man... Iceman and Firestar, they didn't know, you know, Firestar and Iceman knew each other, but they didn't know Spider-Man. They kind of team up and they get the computer back and rescue Tony Stark. And then Tony Stark, out of gratitude, gives them a whole arsenal of computers and things for their spider lair. And that's how they kind of got all their, their gizmos and contraptions that had been in the series. So it wasn't the MCU that started this whole relationship between Peter Parker and Tony Stark and you know the exchanging of technology it was actually Spider-Man and his amazing friends back in 1981 hmm you've unearthed the secret the seeds so but now Firestar was created for that show right yes but uh, then obvi- obvious, obviously Iceman was from the X-Men right so he had been around yeah. But yeah, they wanted a uh, female superhero and they ended up just creating Firestar. Right, and then she later went into the comics. <clears throat> Did she get to the comics? I don't, I have Yeah, no she idea. was, uh, I know, I remember seeing her in the Avengers and uh, uh, maybe that's it. I don't, I, you know, like I said, I stopped reading after a while, but I know she was <laughs> in the Avengers for a while. Yeah, so, um, and her, her voice was done by, I can't remember her name. She did sissy. She was sissy in Family Affair. Um, I know who you're talking about. I want to say Kathy, or Cindy Garver. I want to say Garvey. Yeah. Garver. Yeah. So, uh, so that was interesting. And then, so Spider-Man had kind of a layoff after uh, the 1981 series, and he didn't come back until 1994. And uh, for most old codgers like us, the original 67 Spider-Man was kind of the iconic series. But I think for the later generations, 94 was the iconic series. And it lasted for uh, over five seasons, 65 episodes, which at the time was like the most, obviously, for any of those kind of superhero uh, TV shows. And uh, the fuller animation. And I remember when it first came on and the first episode, he's fighting the lizard. And I saw him like jump in. He like basically does a flip and swings around a light post and all this and it's like wow okay this is like a a big step up for animation for spider-man and uh yeah obviously with that many episodes there was quite a few of the uh of the villains in there and everything else um about five years later spider-man unlimited started and the series only lasted one season but uh the premise was that John Jameson took a rocket and was traveling to Counter Earth, which is actually based on the comic version by the, created by the High Evolutionary in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. But this one had a twist. 
As the rocket is about to take off, Carnage and Venom stow aboard. Spider-Man tries to stop them, but fails. So off goes John Jameson with both Venom and Carnage in tow. And uh, Spider-Man ends up getting on a rocket, another rocket, and following them. But before he does, he creates a new costume, which has a, uh, a subsonic beam that can disrupt both uh, Carnage and Venom. He's got stealth, so he can like turn invisible. And the costume is basically the exact same suit as Spider-Man 2099. So you see him running around in that, but it's not Miguel. It's actually Peter Parker in the suit. Hmm. So um, basically, the, the interesting the place they run into. It's almost like a Doctor Moreau's island-like world, where it's run by half animal, half human hybrids under the leadership of the High Evolutionary. So Spider-Man finds John Jameson, but Jameson doesn't want to leave until he uh, liberates the humans from the uh, hybrids and frees them. So that basically leads on to a whole series. And Spider-Man meets a lot of his, quote, foes, like Green Goblin and things, but they're all good guys in this counter-Earth. So he has to work with them, but he's, like, really hesitant. And it's actually pretty interesting, but it's a very short series. That seems like they're relying on the viewer to have a pretty deep Marvel knowledge. Either that or they just introduced it like it's a totally new concept and no one's going to know any better. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so then there was Spider-Man, the new animated series. And uh, this one basically took, came in after Sam Raimi, after his Spider-Man, and uh, was on MTV. And so the the show is basically based on Raimi's character's it only lasted one season, but it had two notable voice actors in it. Clark Duncan, who played the Kingpin in the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, reprises his role as the Kingpin. And then guess who did Peter Parker Spider-Man's voice for that one? It was Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, okay. Doogie Hauser. So, Doogie Hauser was Spider-Man. So that... Uh, that went on just, you know, very short season and uh, led to the spectacular Spider-Man in 2008. And uh, that series lasted two seasons of 13 episodes each. It was planned for 65 episodes. However, in 2009, uh, Sony relinquished its TV rights to Spider-Man and they returned to Marvel. So shortly after that, in 2010... Marvel had bought was bought by Disney, but um, that was in the midst of the Ultimate Spider-Man, which to date is is the longest running of all Spider-Man series. It's basically um, a series that's 104 episodes, and was surpassed only by Avengers Assemble, which ran 126. And then in 2017, Spider-Man started Marvel's Spider-Man. And it's the current series that's running on Disney XD now. In fact, as of this recording, the third season premiere episode was coming up on Disney XD. And we actually have the director coming over the interocitor. And uh, we want to introduce you to a friend of Planet 8. Uh, Tim Eldred has joined us uh, 
artist, writer, animator. Uh, he's the director for the Spider-Man series over on Disney XD. Um, Tim, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Welcome, Spider Friends. <laughs> yes. So straight away, um, this is our Spider-Man episode, our 50th episode, uh, 50th podcast. Um, let me ask you, you've been in the business 24 years. Um, how did you get into the Spider-Man uh, show? Uh, how did that all start? Well, this is actually, believe it or not, my fifth round with Spider-Man in TV animation. Oh, wow. That thing just keeps going and going and going. Uh, <laughs> it's second only to Scooby-Doo in terms of how many times it's been relaunched. Wow. And as a matter of fact, I've worked on Scooby-Doo as well. Oh, that is cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got into TV animation back in the late 90s. Um, I was a comic book artist before that, and that provided a springboard because... When you live in L.A. and you're a comic book artist, you very quickly find that you uh, have a big overlap in skills uh, with animation artists. And so if you can do comics, you can probably also do storyboards. And um, it was in pitching one of my comics to an animation studio that got me hired as a storyboard artist. And um, my first show was called... Wing Commander Academy. It uh, it ran, uh, I think, in 96. Shortly after that, I signed on with Sony Animation and stayed on uh, for a few years. And then in 2002, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie came out and was a gigantic hit. And I was in the studio that was positioned to do the TV version of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So... Um, it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. So that turned into a show that was simply called Spider-Man. I think it went on the air in 2003. It was all CG and it was on MTV. I remember that show. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly difficult because not only was it Spider-Man and not only was it a follow-on to like the biggest movie of the year, um, we also had three bosses to answer to. That was Sony, Marvel, and MTV. And oh, uh, you can imagine the clash of egos that that brought into play. I could imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh, there were you know, three major studios, um, all of whom thought they had veto power, when in fact none of them did over creative <laughs> decisions. Um, <laughs> So getting the show launched was difficult enough, but then during the process of making the show, uh, we often ran into these um, creative conflicts and had no clear directive from anyone. Because as soon as one side said, no, we want to do it this way, the other side would step up and say, no, we're going to do it this way. And they literally battled each other to a standstill. um, To a point where they all had to... uh, agreed that it was best to put the show on hold for a month. So they essentially paid us to sit around and wait for them to decide how to handle things. And eventually they brought on a showrunner from live action TV who took over and uh, 
was the actual uh, showrunner with veto power. And that got things going again. Um, and then he departed, and I think everything pretty much stayed on course because by that time, they'd all worn themselves out. <laughs> that uh, And uh, they just wandered off and left us alone. So we ended up making 13 episodes, actually 14, but one of them got killed in that uh, slowdown. Uh, there was an entire episode... I can't remember who the villain was or what the story was, but uh, it was completely scripted and storyboarded and then thrown away. So somewhere in some archive in the bowels of Sony, there is an unproduced episode of that Spider-Man series that no one will ever see. Interesting. Um, well, the show that got on the air ran for 13 episodes, and it was one of the first CG uh, shows that had ever been done from start to finish. Uh, it was done in the tune shader style, which is um, different from the fully sculpted 3D style, where everything looks kind of semi-realistic, uh, because they wanted to go for a comic book. And tune shader is a method where you can uh, feed something into a computer algorithm that just outlines an object for you and fills it in with color. And so it looks a little more like hand-drawn animation, but it still moves like CG animation, very smooth and very fluid. Um, but it doesn't age well, in my opinion. When I go back and look at that show today, um, it looks kind of almost like a puppet show. And that's simply because it was such a product of its time. Um, but it was definitely... Uh, an educational experience to work on and I would not have traded it because I learned so much from it. Well, I was going to ask uh, how much creative, well, what kind of creative input did MTV have? Because obviously Marvel knows the character. Sony at that point was probably pretty well acquainted with the character, but it seems like MTV is just kind of out of left field. Well, MTV in their own mind was the uh, the one who knew the audience best. And so one of the gimmicks that they wanted to play with was bringing in um, music stars as voice actors. Um, in a couple of cases, it went really well. They had Rob Zombie as Kurt Connors, and that was great. He knew his stuff. Um, but then they had another actress uh, or a musician named Eve who played a character who I, I can't remember. It might have been Black Cat. Um, but this was her first experience in animation and it was a bit of a struggle I'll just hmm. put it that way <laughs> uh, but um, MTV had very strong opinions on how the characters should look and how they should dress and uh, that was one of many many compromises that had to be uh, accommodated because um, I don't think anybody else liked the way the characters were looking. I certainly didn't. Um, but, you know, it's, it's out there. It's in the um, archive of entertainment for all time. And uh, it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses, just like anything else. Right. And that's, is that one of the ones you can see on Disney Plus? I don't know if that one's on Disney Plus, but everything else I've done for Marvel is there. Yeah. I have seen that out on DVD. I don't know if it's still available, but... Yeah, it did come out on DVD. It, it might have not have been the entire series, but 
Uh, either way, it ends on a cliffhanger that you'll never get to see the end of. <laughs> uh, well, it's kind of interesting because it's one of those stories where uh, Peter Parker throws away the Spider-Man costume and says, I'm never going to be Spider-Man again because of everything it ends up costing him. And then he walks away, and in that particular continuity, that is the end of Spider-Man. Interesting. So well, a few may, times he didn't take it back. Yeah, it means to be the one case where that plot actually uh, did not get resolved, you know, did not get returned to status quo. Right, right. That's interesting. Interesting. I have it in my library, so I have to watch that again. So, so from there, uh, where did that lead you after that uh, series ended? After that series ended, uh, I went to work for Warner Brothers for a while, mm. and uh, then went freelance. And by that time, the next version was underway back at Sony, and that was called Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, and over the years, I think that has fared better in critical terms. Uh, I didn't uh, work on the staff there. I was a freelance storyboard artist. So I got to uh, create boards for, I think, three or four different episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the first one, I was on staff and I was a director. So I handled complete episodes from start to finish. Uh, when you're a freelancer, you just get pieces of shows. You just get a single act or a portion of an act. And usually it's a three-act story. Um, so you don't get to work on a, an entire episode. You answer to a director who's got his eye on the ball. And he who supervises the entire series. Um, so that's how the hierarchy works. Um, I am currently a director, which means I have a supervising director above me. Uh, who is aware of issues that cross the entire series rather than just single episodes. Um, So Spectacular Spider-Man was a very different looking show. It was all 2D and it was pretty cool. Uh, I I liked the character designs a lot. Um, I I was friends with just about everybody who worked on it. Some of them were veterans of the previous Spider-Man show. Um, by this time, almost everybody I know has worked on some Spider-Man show somewhere. Uh, so, um, Spectacular came and went, and then, um, I went to, uh, other studios to do more freelancing, and then a few years later, um, Ultimate Spider-Man came up. And this was before Marvel had been purchased by Disney, and they did not have a studio of their own at the time. Um, If you look at the history of Marvel animation, it's very patchy. There were times when they had their own studio and there were times when they didn't. And during those times, they had to outsource the work to a studio that already existed. In this case, it was, um, oh shoot. Um, Whatever studio handles The Simpsons. Draw a blank. It'll come. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody's listening and, and screaming at their. Uh, right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, at that point, um, Marvel outsourced it to that studio. Um, they were doing another Marvel show at the time, Hero Squad, a comedy show. And uh, Ultimate Spider Man was yet again a redesign. 
uh, yet again a relaunch. In this show, um, Spider-Man had a team. Yeah, that's right. He had a team of heroes that he was working with, which reflected the way things were going in the industry. At the time. Oh, yeah, this the studio was also handling uh, Avengers Assemble. And so I jumped around between all these different shows for them. Uh, no, no. Um, I'm crossing my streams again. That was Earth's Mightiest Heroes, a different Avengers show. Oh, yeah. Yep. So I got to freelance for that one and also Ultimate Spider-Man. I would jump back and forth between the two. Um, and in, in this time period, it seemed like everybody was into team shows. So whereas Spidey was a solo hero up to that point, uh, they decided they wanted to give him a team to be part of in Ultimate Spider-Man. So he joined S.H.I.E.L.D. in the second episode, and they teamed him up with Power Man, Iron Fist, and White Tiger. And so for the... Oh, and Nova also. So for the entire run of Ultimate Spider-Man, it was a team of five heroes. Um, when they were working on their first season... They ran into some trouble with the first two episodes, and there was nobody on staff who had time to fix them. So they called me in as, as kind of a substitute director. Uh, shows one and two all the way to finish. So um, if you see that one, which is on Disney+, Plus, you'll see me listed as a director only for those first two episodes. Um, so I had to take storyboards that were finished up to a certain point and there were a whole bunch of revisions that had to be done because as you get deeper into a series, you realize, oh, the, the thing is developing in a way that we didn't quite anticipate. So let's go back and redo some stuff in those first few shows to, to have it uh, run smoother. And so they called me in to just manage those first two shows. So uh, it was kind of cool to have authorship at that, uh, at that stage. And then I continued on with some others. Um, there was one really interesting episode that I worked on called Point of View, I think. And it was a, it was a found footage style episode where Spider-Man was out fighting this giant electric creature called Zax. And the Hulk was in it. And Mary Jane was covering it for the Daily Bugle. And the entire uh, episode was shown through footage on her phone <laughs> so it was a really cool way of, of studying that filmmaking technique even though it was animation and it was hand drawn everything still had to have that, that POV framing um, and it would have been nice to do more like that but you know, once you do it it, it, it kind of becomes a gimmick and you don't want to go back to it that often um, so that was my third Spider-Man show yeah, you know, I really, I really liked Ultimate Spider-Man. I think because of he always broke the fourth plane or whatever, and he also had those kind of he'd think something out or whatever. You'd see his thoughts, but it was like that kind of cartoony Spider-Man that would do different things. Yeah, another interesting thing about it is because it was started up before the Disney purchase, uh, they still had access to certain characters that weren't. Um, available to Disney. 
Um, so occasional villains would show up or uh, occasional guest stars would show up. Uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes was under the same umbrella. So, for example, um, before the Disney purchase, you could put the Fantastic Four in an Avengers episode. Mm-hmm. could put uh, Wolverine in a Spider-Man episode. And uh, when Disney stepped up and the purchase was complete, um, some big, thick walls went up between Disney Marvel and other studios that uh, have the rights to certain characters. You know, like Sony still had Spider-Man, so uh, there were limitations there. And um, Fox still had X-Men and Fantastic Four, so there were limitations there. Um, Hopefully those limitations will pretty soon. Um, We shall see. Well, didn't uh, didn't Sony give up their TV rights after a while? Yes, they did, and uh, that's what allowed Spider-Man to show up in some Avengers episodes that I worked in. But um, let me uh, let me back up a little bit. Um, since I had done a lot of work for a uh, film Roman, film Roman, that's the studio. Since I had freelanced a bunch for Film Roman, that positioned me to join the actual current Marvel Animation Studio when it was formed in the summer of 2012. And so all the productions that were running at Film Roman either wrapped up or transferred over to this new studio. Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, finished its run and was replaced by a new one called Marvel's Spider-Man. Uh, we have acronyms for those shows at the at Marvel Studios. So it went from USM to MSM. <laughs> and uh, the Avengers show called Earth's Mightiest Heroes wrapped up and a new one started called Avengers Assemble. And so my first job at Marvel Animation Studio in 2012 was as a director on Avengers Assemble. And that went for five seasons. And Spider-Man, Hulk, and Guardians of the Galaxy all had their own shows that were concurrent with that. So during that time, that was a very, very busy studio. Um, Now, not so much, because a lot of those things have uh, fallen by the wayside and not been picked up again. Uh, But that brings me to the fourth Spider-Man show I worked on, which is Marvel's Spider-Man. And that is the one that just premiered, uh, the third season of which just premiered today, April 19, on Disney XD. So that's kind of an interesting little calendar cross we just made. Marvel's Spider-Man is re-identified and redesigned to follow the the newest uh, live action incarnation, you know the Marvel Studios Spider Man, uh, and it's not identical. But you can uh, the best way I can describe it is that it would take um, that first movie, you know, that first newest movie, as its starting point and spins off into a whole different continuity, exactly the way the Tobey Maguire movie spinned off into that MTV series. Mm. And so um, 
anyone who's looking for continuity between the live-action Marvel films and this version of Spider-Man will not find it. But that's not really the point. Um, there have been so many iterations of Spider-Man over the years that um, we just kind of assume that everybody's aware that what happens in a TV Spider-Man is not going to be reflected in a live-action film Spider-Man. Uh, and we're all kind of glad that that doesn't happen because it would be a nightmare to court. Well, in the, mm-hmm. new, in the new series, he's got, uh, isn't Miles Morales in that one and Spider-Gwen? And exactly. It's almost it's almost more like the Spider-Verse than the MCU Spider-Man, I think. You got that exactly right. Um, they're back to the you know, team show because there's a whole team of Spider-People. Um my theory about that team aesthetic is that if you have more characters, you can sell more merchandise. <laughs> well, that's, that's always right. the goal, right? Sounds about right. Yep. Um, so the, uh, the, the MTV series experience, I think, was very educational because uh, I think if we had to coordinate our TV Spider-Man with the live-action movie Spider-Man now, we would run into all the same problems, all the same conflicts that were such a nightmare on that MTV series. So uh, if it was my cross to bear um, for the sake of making future shows easier, then I'm uh, happy to have gone through it. So Marvel's uh, has gone through two seasons already, and they're all on Disney+. Plus. The new season started today. It's going to run 10 episodes, and the, the plan was uh, to make each set a two-parter. So there are five stories told over 10 episodes, but they all have a single story arc as well. So I think they're showing them two at a time, and that, uh, that explains why. Okay, cool. And then at some point, those will go over to Disney Plus, or? Oh, I imagine so. If the previous ones are there, then uh, there's your conduit. Um, all the Avengers shows are there, too, all five seasons that I worked on. <coughs> and it's really cool when I open up Disney Plus and go to the Avengers page and see a still from one of my shows. Ah, oh, there you go. So what were uh, some of your yeah, favorite cool. episodes to work on as far as you know, story-wise or... Well, each one of them has its own um, its own advantages and its own drawbacks. Um, sometimes you get a show that um, that is mostly set up, especially if you're in a the first part of a two-parter. You tend to get a story that is a setup for a bigger story, and so you don't get to play in quite as big a sandbox. But um, you just find ways to make the little moments more interesting um i can't really tell you anything about what's coming up on msm because um you know ndas and all of that uh but it's a really interesting combination of things and once i understood the full sweep of the story arc where characters get uh, kind of merged together into newer and more dangerous characters, uh, I started to see um, the part that I had to play in that in terms of doing the the smaller stories leading up to the bigger stories. So uh, if you stick it out, what seems like a not very interesting 
script can turn out to be very interesting in the in the, uh, the longer arc. Whew. Yep, that's interesting. So it's, it's ten episodes. Is that pretty normal for a season? It kind of sounds kind of short. It is a little short, and um, I'm not really certain why that number was was decided. Usually, it's thirteen or twenty six, uh, but. Things are getting shorter and shorter now because um, there's less. Uh, there, are, there are fewer ways to get it out in front of people on broad. Higher audience is moving over to streaming, and so if you spend a lot of money for a show that's on network TV, you're not going to get as many eyeballs on it as you used to, and. Um, I think that is having a big impact now on the lengths of, uh, of a commitment. So whereas we started out every Avengers season with 26 episodes, the last one was cut down to 23. And whereas we would normally have a 13 episode commitment for a Spider-Man, this one went down to 10. Um, and it's all, I think, part of a larger conversation about where media is going especially on TV. Uh, it's just something that nobody quite has a handle on yet, and everybody in Hollywood is frightened of it, and they're all just taking it one day at a time. Every time I've ever been in a studio meeting over the last 24 years, the refrain has always been some version of things are in transition, nobody quite knows what's happening, we're just <laughs> waiting. See, next. That's the standard uh, situation. Well, they probably said that like way back when UHF stations started coming in. I'm oh, sure we got all these did. other stations coming in. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And then cable and then satellite and streaming and yeah, whatever. Yeah. What I think that statement means is nobody can predict the future and we're all scared of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, so uh, what was your what was your Spider-Man exposure outside of doing the cartoons? Did you read the comics or watch the old TV shows or whatever? I was a Spider-Man comic book reader from I think 1975, maybe 74. Um, my first exposure was uh, I think in the latter 130s which led into the Gwen Stacy clone saga, which ran from, I think, issue 140 up to 150. I was on for just about all of that, and it was amazing. Um, I think Ross Andrew was the artist on it at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, that, uh, that made Spider-Man my hero. Spidey and FF were my favorite Marvel comics as a kid. Um, and that uh, played itself out, I think, in an interesting way when I got older and got my uh, comic book career going. Whenever I was really, really jammed up with deadlines, I would have work nightmares where, you know, actual like dreams turned into nightmares where I had taken on one project too many and there was always one thing sitting off on the side I could never get to and it was eating away at me and in these dreams, that extra project was always Spider-Man. Yeah. 
And that has nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that I now draw Spider-Man for a living. How funny. Yeah. Uh, there's worse ways to make a living. The brain works in mysterious ways. <laughs> uh, so that brings me up to uh, current day, where I'm now working on my fifth Spider-Man TV series. It just got off the ground uh, in January, and it's going to be for Disney XD again. And I cannot tell you anything about it because, you know, it's early days and we've all signed NDAs. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you that this is one the kids will love. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's cool. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's uh, just amazing to hear, uh, you know, all the different projects you worked on, uh, those related to Spider-Man. And um, it, it's it's quite the sandlot to be able to play in that, that IP that's been around for decades. Yeah, we had a, one of those uh, studio meetings that I um, alluded to a couple of years ago, and we all learned something very interesting, which is that of all the superhero characters in the world, Spider-Man is the most recognized. He scores higher than Superman and Batman. Wow. Yep. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, I would say probably in this country, maybe not, but are there like other countries where he's just like out of this, this world so popular? Is that what accounts for it? Yep, the entire world. You go to China, <clears throat> Spider-Man is recognized before Superman and Batman, or at least by more people. And that is why I think there will always be some version of Spider-Man in production. That's amazing, because you, you think back, you know, I think we're all of a certain age, and I know when growing up it always seemed like DC had the upper hand, they had their characters out there in cartoons and movies, and it felt like more products with Batman and Superman and maybe Wonder Woman. But now, certainly, it seems like the Marvel characters are everywhere you look yep. so yeah that's really that's amazing well yeah, i always say that if you would have told me you know years ago that a captain america versus iron man movie would outgross a batman versus superman movie i would have said you're crazy <laughs> yep and now we're just waiting to see what happens post quarantine uh a lot of things are on hold right now oh yeah i'm Sure, looking forward to the premiere of Black Widow. Yes. But who knows when that's going to happen. Now, is, yeah. the, is the quarantine affecting this new Spider-Man series? or? No, as a matter of fact, TV animation is the one form of production that seems to be quarantine-proof. Oh, that's good. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's great news. Now as there has ever been. And the simple explanation for that is because we're all bound to workstations now, mm -hmm. uh, all you have to do is take your workstation somewhere else. Uh, just about everybody I know in the business is working from home now, and they just connect to a remote server to get the materials they need. And um, all the meetings we used to have have just moved to Zoom or you know, to our phones or whatever. So we lack physical contact, but the work is still getting done. I thought you were going to say it was quarantine proof because all the parents are quarantined with their kids now. And they need more <laughs> content, more stuff to keep them busy. 
Well, that wouldn't be limited to animation, but <laughs> yes, you're, you are correct. It is now essential. But to be fair, uh, this, the series that I am now working on probably won't debut until next year. Um, mm. so hopefully, this will all be a memory by then. <laughs> Well, look, Jim, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, Bob or Karen, any any last minute uh, questions uh, you might have for Tim before we let him go? Um, sure. Are there any other projects of yours that we should be looking out for? Thank you for asking. Um, during this <laughs> time, I have also been working on my own personal webcomic. Uh, it's called Pittsburgh. And you spell that P-I-T-S-B-E-R-G. Hmm. It's a multimedia science fiction webcomic. You can find it at pittsburgh.com. It's, um, it's highly experimental in that it has multiple narratives. And it's done on the, uh, with the format, which allows you to go off and in any direction you want with artwork. Uh, it's a, a kind of an answer to all the years that I spent working for paper and chafing at the limitations of it. Um, this is a science fiction slash mystery slash superhero story. And mm. um, what I love about it is that when I decided it's never going to be bound to paper, it opened up all these different new creative uh, freedoms that I never even understood before. And... I love it so much, I can't see myself ever going back to paper after this. So if you're looking for a way to to, you, to uh, spend some hours, go to pittsburgh.com and start reading. Okay. That's very cool. We'll, we'll make sure we put that up on our webpage uh, so folks can point and click towards it. Thanks. Yeah, and some of it is in. So I'm using every trick in the book I can think of. That sounds very cool. That's great. How about... Uh Grease Monkey, is that still around? Grease Monkey is also still online. That's a comic that started on paper and became a webcomic. You can find that at greasemonkeybook.com. That's a science fiction comedy for all ages. And um, if you happen to be an anime fan, you might know about a series called Space Battleship Yamato. Uh, I've been a huge fan of that almost my entire career, and I run a website called Cosmo DNA, which is the largest internet archive for that series in the world. You can find mm -hmm. it at OurStarBlazers.com. Well, Tim, uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and we'll have all that information up on the webpage for folks to point and click at. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, again, want to say thank you. It was a lot of fun talking to you today. Thank you. Stay virus-free. Yes, you too. <laughs> Stay safe. You too. Take it easy. Bye. Okay, that was really cool hearing from Tim. Um, let's go ahead and segue into the cinematic appearance of our beloved Spider-Man. Um, uh, you know, the, the first time that we saw Spidey up on the big big screen was the Spider-Man movie. And uh, Tobey Maguire, I felt, did a, a good job in bringing the Spider-Man and Peter Parker character 
to the big screen. Um, how did you feel about it, uh, Bob, uh, when you first saw the film? I mean, there was all this hype uh, building up to it. It was pre-9-11, and, you know, unfortunately, 9-11 happened, and uh, they made some changes uh, to the film. But um, uh, overall, what, what did you think of the of the movie? Well, they had that cool trailer. So, where well, the, yeah, that was yeah, the... Yeah, where the thieves the are getting towers. away in the helicopter, and he webs them up between the, web to- the Twin Towers. And yeah, they had to scrap that. And I'm assuming that was a, probably a scene in the movie, which they had to cut out. I thought so, too, yeah. I was kind of hoping it would be on the... DVD, Blu-ray, but no chance. But um, no, I thought I, I really enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. I think he he was maybe a little old. Yeah. Yeah. You know? He's definitely yeah. not a high school kid or even a college kid at that point. But uh, but the movie overall was good. I think he did, he played a good Peter Parker and you know was good as Spider-Man. How did you feel about the movie, uh, Karen? Oh, well, when it first came out, you know, I was tremendously excited because finally, you know, the Marvel heroes were getting a treatment similar to what DC, you know, I mean, because obviously like the Christopher Reeve Superman had been such a success and the Batman movie had been really well done for that time and so then to see spider-man on the big screen was great i i do agree i never really was comfortable with toby mcguire entirely um peter parker was okay although he was a little old but i think my problem initially was that i always wanted to see spider-man as kind of the wisecracking character i saw in the comics and he didn't do a ton of that in the the movies so uh, I kind of missed that, and I didn't care for. Uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking on uh, the actress who played Mary Jane, but I I thought she was oh, uh, just, Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, she had all the personality of a cardboard box, so I, I just <laughs> didn't care for her at all. So, because you know, in the comics, Mary Jane is this vivacious, exciting person, and Kirsten Dunst always seemed like she was sedated or something. So that, that, that's my friend Waka. She tells it as it is. I can't help myself. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I, I had a huge crush on her at the time, so I had no problem with her acting or, or lack thereof. But, um, yeah, it, it was a fun movie and, and you made a good point, you know, since Superman and then the uh, Batman movie in the eighties with, uh, Michael Keaton, you know, uh, we hadn't really seen anything from Marvel other than, you know, the Hulk on TV was really popular and fun. And like Bob had alluded to the cartoons and the the TV version. And so this was a Sony production. This is before Marvel started their Marvel Universe, cinematic universe. So um, I, I, the second movie comes out and I love the second movie more so than the first. I, I will say before we get into the second film, um I, I like the soundtrack for the uh, film um, that was, um, oh God, Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, Danny, uh, Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, thank you very much. Um, it, it's not as iconic as the Superman march that John Williams, I mean, that will eternally, in my book, define Superman in, in film. But it, it was good. It, it lent to the excitement of the film and... Um, I also like the relationship with Uncle Ben. 
I think of all the iterations of Spider-Man on film, that is my favorite. I also like the person who played Aunt May. Um, it, it wasn't like Karen had said, the teenage Peter with the jokes and the kind of snarky remarks, but the relationship that he had with his mm-hmm. uncle and his aunt really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, going she into was, the she was the film, closest Aunt May to the comic that they ever had. Cause right. Because every time they have a new right. iteration of Aunt May, she gets younger. <laughs> My wife was asking because, you know, I was watching the films leading up to this and she's like, when did she become so hot? You know, Larissa Torme. And I'm like, oh, it's a different demographic. (laughs) You know, I was just making up whatever reasons for it. Well, Um, you have to kind of you have to kind of question, though, like if Peter's a, quote, high school kid, why would he have an aunt that's like in her 70s or something? Yeah, well, you know, and there you go. I mean, you can, it's you like, can uh, make it's whatever. a pretty long stretch. So it's actually, yeah. I would say <laughs> Peter Parker and the Sally Field version is probably about right. Yeah, uh, the the Garfield uh, version of Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield. Um, you know, I didn't care for those films too much. Uh, he, he just didn't work for me. Um but, but anyway, before we get into that, the, the Dr. Octopus story. Well, don't, don't me, skip over William Defoe as the Green Goblin. Ah, you know what, Bob? Thank you. That, that, that was, is true. I, I didn't care for the Green Goblin costume. The Jet Jaguar costume. It was dreadful. Dreadful. <laughs> Again, I love Karen. Uh, well, I don't know if it, no, it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's basically they ripped um, off Chet Jaguar from Godzilla vs. Megalon. Yeah. Painted him green. <laughs> but anyway, point, Defoe. Oh, actually. <laughs> but no, but he did a great job. Um, you know, when he first, you know, discovers that Peter is Spider-Man, I mean, that was just like, you know, there's one line in the film where he's like, now nah, you pissed me off. It's like, oh, chills down the spine. Um, I also like the goblin's death scene, you know, that was good. Um, yeah, it, it just, it, it worked. Uh, I think it's a credit to the director. Well, um, also, Sam Raimi. Don't, don't forget, uh, in both films, I think all three, uh, JK Simmons is J Jonah Jameson. Oh, oh another good point, Walker. We used to say he four because he came back, right, in uh, Far From Home. Right. He, they, he had that cameo in the, uh, Far From Home. So, And that had to be, yeah. like, the most exciting cameo in a long time. <laughs> and when he pops up, because I tried not to learn anything about the movie, but when he pops up, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's absolutely That's- perfect. Exactly. How could you cast anyone else? I mean, you know, you can question the different Aunt Mays and stuff, but I, I, you know, I can't see that they could have cast anyone else as J. Jonah Jameson. Changed his look a little, but that's fine. Put him on the Internet rather than newspaper, print Mm -hmm. paper. That's fine. Um, So anyway, there's all these things that really worked in the, the first film. They, they carried over to the second film. And to me, the character of Dr. Octopus, they borrowed a little from the Batman animated series. Um, oh, God, I can't think of the name of the episode, but it's Mr. Freeze. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
you know, and he, he loses his wife, you know, it's uh, for freeze. It's a disease. And, and he, you know, uh, freezes her to try and find a cure. But it was the loss of his wife that kind of pushes Octavius over. Well, and the chip in his neck with the thing, the, the arms going crazy. Um, I, I love that the arms in the hospital, they're they're self-aware. And it, it's reminiscent of the Evil Dead film, the way that they zoomed around and grabbed people and kind of had fun with it. Uh, going forward, though, um, I, I thought the, uh, I guess, CGI uh, that they used, I mean, and some of it was practical effects, but they pulled off a great Doc Ock. Yeah, that was it was funny because when they announced that Dr. Octopus was going to be the villain, I was kind of like, eh, okay. But then I actually, I really both cared for him, but I also thought he was very menacing too. So they, they really sucked right. me into that one. Great actor too. I can't think of his name. Um, Alfred Molina. Molina, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that was, that's had to be the pinnacle of Spider-Man films right there. I mean, even... I enjoy that even more than the Marvel stuff now. It's like that's, I think, the tent pole or tent post of uh, of Spider-Man films, especially the the battle it, on the train. Yes, and even on the building with Aunt May. I mean, yeah. I agree with you, Bob. It's up there. I, I do like the Michael Keaton version of of um, the, the Vulture Vult- too, yeah. but we we can get into that um, as we move forward. Um, you know, and I, I hate to take a step back, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, uh, the uh, Spider-Man and the Electric Company. <laughs> he, re- he reminded me of the Ditko version. I kind of ignored that one when I was going through the TV yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I meant to say something, and then I, I got sidetracked thinking about uh, some of the some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But but anyway, I, I digress. Um. Yeah, so so the second film, um, he he admits to Aunt May that he had something to do. He felt with uh, with Uncle Ben's passing, and and that to me was, you know, a very well played out emotional scene. Um, you know, the way that May loves Peter was the, the the Aunt May from the comic book, and and the love that she had for her, you know, Peter Parker given him the $20 on his birthday and she's in the middle of losing the house. He sees all the bills and he's like, man, I can't take this. She's like, take it. I don't have much, but you know, it was just like, Oh God, that's just great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it all gets thrown out the window when we get to Spider-Man three. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there were a lot of, uh, reports and, and articles that was saying that, you know, um, Venom was kind of forced on the, the, the production and the director and, um, you know, be that as it may, it, it's too bad because uh, I don't know if you guys heard, they, they wanted to cast, uh, maybe not in the third film, but if they did a fourth film, it was going to be uh, the vulture. And they were going to cast John Malkovich. Um, That is that is, you know, in some alternate universe. I'm sure that was a a great film. Um, But, you know, instead we got Venom and uh, 
Harry uh, inheriting or taking on the, uh, the the Green Goblin in in, in a, a version of the Green Goblin, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't even a goblin, Thanks. really. It was just on some hoverboard. Yeah, yeah. you know, you know in, in a way, I didn't want him to wear the mask and the suit. And in a way, it was like, I wish he had more than what he wore. Well, I got to say, I, in that movie, the perfect, perfect casting and perfect version was uh, Sandman. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Karen? Oh, they, yeah, the same thing. The Sandman stuff was great. It was all the other stuff that was crap. Right. Um, too, too much, too many ingredients in the soup. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think Walker? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Bob, I, I mean, Bob, oh, you, yeah. you could, you know, say what you want about, uh, you know, uh, who they cast and whatever, but there's just too much going on. Too many stories. No, but like I say, if they just concentrated on Sandman, I mean, it was, wow. you know, he was, he, the casting of Sandman was almost equally as good as, as, Molina as uh, Doc Ock. Yeah, and I think you kind of uh, kind of felt sorry for the Sandman story, you know. Um, he, he wasn't an intentional bad guy, as it were. Um, so anyway, um, never got the fourth film in that series, like we said. Uh, a couple of years go by. Um Announcement is made at Comic-Con. Andrew Garfield is cast as Spider-Man. And uh, this was going to introduce not Mary Jane, but... Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Go go ahead and edit that out. Uh, Gwen Stacy um, in that film. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it just... I, I didn't... I, I, I didn't really care for the actor. Karen, I know you liked him a lot more um, because of yeah. his quips and, and the... Um, well, actually, I'll let you go ahead and, and talk about what it was you liked no, about I him. Just, I liked him because I thought he had a little more youthful energy. Plus, I think they allowed Spider-Man to be more of a wisecracking character. But, but that was it. Everything else around him was kind of crap. <laughs> I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm using that term a lot right now, um, but you know the story bringing in the whole elements about you know his parents and the secret agent stuff, which was a thing that happened in a Spider-Man annual, and then everybody disguided. We're we're just going to ignore that. Yeah. Um, but you know, and then like I, the lizard is one of my favorite villains, and then they did a horrible lizard. You know, this terrible giant CGI, crappy creature and. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was like I thought he was all right, but then everything else around him, I just. Uh, just well, Garfield like was, a, he was a very moody, angst ridden Peter Parker. Yeah, but so were the early Lee Ditko. You know, if you look at him, he was kind of an angry, frustrated young guy. So I didn't feel it was necessarily a bad interpretation. Yeah, I, you know, same with uh, I I like the character of the lizard. Um, uh, There there was kind of like a hint of him maybe showing up in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, uh, Doc Connor. You know, he had conversation with Doc Connor, but it just, you know, it didn't happen. Well, Raimi um, wanted to do the Sinister Six for the sixth movie, but he never got past the third. 
I tell you what, you know, I would pay good money to go see maybe not the Sinister Six, but at least Craven to be in in a Spider-Man film. The Frustrated Four? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we could go with that. Um, the other thing that I always thought would work well with Spider-Man is to start the film like a James Bond movie where, you know, Spider-Man's just putting the final web on the rhino and putting a sign, you know, sticker on it, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man courtesy of. And then the next film starts with Mysterio or Craven or, you know, Dr. Noah body, you know, whatever. And and they've never really done that. They kind of did that with Garfield with with introducing the rhino. I think in the Electro, uh, which would have been the second film. Well, Electro was uh, the second film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the Rhino was, they, they played yeah. with it, but it, it didn't work. It just kind of like. Well, it was in a big mecha suit. It, well, yeah. it, right. But here, here's the thing I think that, that really didn't work for me with the Garfield films. You have, you know, uh, Captain Stacy, his death. I didn't really feel it. Um, you, then you have this pivotal moment in in Peter Parker's life and his history, the death of Gwen Stacy, and even when that happened, oh, that was just kind really of tossed feel in it. there. Yeah, and it was such a quick recovery. I don't know. It just maybe if we had a third film, it would have had more of a repercussion on Peter. I don't know. It just. It didn't work for me. I don't. I don't know how you guys felt mm-hmm. about the the death of. Uh, no, it should be such a pivotal thing, and then it just seemed like it was kind of thrown off. Yeah. Not to mention the Green was, Goblin was. I don't know. Do you prefer that Green Goblin or the William Defoe Green Goblin? As far uh, as Goblin looks or suit or whatever. I can't even remember what that Green Goblin looked like now. To be honest, he's had like makeup, oh, like pointy ears, and. Huh. He had a suit, but it was just for his a hair. Minute, his though, hair right? was I like would... combed up into a point hmm. instead of a hood or whatever. Well, and to be honest, I, I I was a bad mission commander. I didn't bother to watch the Garfield films preparing for this <laughs> podcast. So I didn't either. So <laughs> okay, so. Then, uh, true believers, let's go ahead and uh, dive into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, um, you know, Sony was very smart to continue to exercise their rights on the the Marvel IP of Spider-Man. And um, thankfully, uh, there was a meeting of the minds and Marvel and Sony were able to work a little deal out. Uh, I would imagine much the same as Universal and Marvel worked out a deal for the Hulk. And Spider-Man made his first appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Captain America Civil War. And I thought it was fun. It was smart. It was exciting. Uh, I like the actor who who plays Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Um, and I do like Civil War. That, that is one of my favorite Marvel films. Definitely my top five. Um, what say you? What 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 did you think, Walker? We you, you heard Civil War is going to have Spider Man. You saw him in the film. Oh 
oh yeah, I really, I really like the way they handle him in the MCU. You know, we finally have an actor who really seems like a young guy, so it's kind of uh, the sweet spot for Spider-Man. You know, the teenager having teenage problems. Uh, I mean, the one thing I you know, we've kind of talked about this before when we reviewed the Spider-Man movies. I'm not too keen on him relying so much on uh, Tony Stark for everything, but. Otherwise, I, I think they've kind of captured the personality and and everything of Spider-Man really well. So I, I was happy to see him come into the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. What about you, Chief? Tom Holland. Let's give him some credit. All right. Tom Holland. Yes. Thank uh, you. No one's mentioned his name. So Tom Holland. Let's hear it for Tom. No, he, he does a great job. When I first heard he was going to be in Civil War, I thought, oh, this is cool. But I thought, yeah, he'll be in there for a second or two like a cameo or something. But uh, I don't know, man. I never got so many chills from a trailer as when, <laughs> you know, Tony calls him in and he grabs Cap's shield and does a flip and lands on top of that vehicle. And, hey, guys. And that was all that was in the trailer. Yeah. But it's like, holy crap, look at Spider-Man. And just the fact that his eyes narrowed for a minute and then popped right. open. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, this is going to be cool. And then when he was in the movie, yeah, I mean, he was in the big battle and he had moments with uh, the Winter Soldier and the Falcon and even Captain America. Yeah, right. I thought I thought his interaction with Captain America was kind of carried over into Endgame where, you know, Cap calls him Queens. And, right. And he, but um, that's why I kind of hoped bringing Spider-Man over to the MCU that he would have like a movie where he's teaming up with Captain America. Now, obviously that's not going to work now, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it was just, it just seemed, he just that little scene where he's holding up the tanker and Cap's talking to him. It was, a, it was a good rapport. So you would think, man, that would, that, that's a missed opportunity right there. <laughs> right. Cap's kind of schooling the young kid, you know, uh, two New Yorkers. Um, I also like uh, when uh, Spider-Man is trying to tell them about the Empire Strikes Back. You know that scene in that old movie? <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, God. Where'd you get <laughs> you <know>? this guy? <laughs> yeah. It's like talking to some of my nephews. It's like, hey, remember that old movie you liked about that guy named Luke? I'm like, that's not an old movie. That's cinematic classic. Um but anyway, yeah, I, I agree. It, it was a fun time, and I was excited to uh, – I'm sure we all were for Homecoming. Um, great surprise ending, at least for me. I didn't see that coming. Um, I love that film all the way through. I love Ned. Um, I love the way it ended with Aunt May throwing the F-bomb. Um, uh, I didn't have as much a problem with Tony kind of being his – you know, Uncle Ben, for lack of a, a better uh, phrase or term, um, it just worked. I, I, I like uh, Happy Hogan. Uh, no, not Happy Hogan. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is Happy Hogan. I'm sorry. John Favreau. I, yeah, John Favreau. Um, it was it was a fun film. Uh, what do you guys think, Karen? Oh yeah, I, I thought it was a really good film. Uh, I really like that they. Again, he has a strong supporting cast, but they decided, okay, we're not going to use the typical, you know, Harry Osborne, and right. uh, you know, so they they fished out Ned Leeds and some other people from the comics, and 
kind of use them instead. And uh, I think one thing, you know, maybe because we're, you know, we're West Coasters, um, <laughs> we didn't think about as much, although Bob kind of just alluded to it, or, or maybe you did, Larry, is the, the whole New York thing and how, how important New York is to Spider-Man's whole backstory, right? right Being, right. you know, swinging around New York and the skyscrapers and everything. And, and they really play off of that in the films, you know, and that he's a hero to the people of New York and you see all the different people, you know, different backgrounds and stuff. And I like some of the scenes where he's running around and like somebody down at like a food cart says, you know, hey, do a flip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you know, flipping and stuff or showing some lady, you know, directions down the street and stuff. So I like that he had a, a more lower profile maybe than uh, some of the other heroes that we see. Although, yeah, he gets sucked into like Infinity War. But uh, yeah. it's kind of nice to see somebody who's just, you know, helping out regular people. Well, that is a good point. And, and you know, to, to a point you made earlier about the teenage uh, Spider-Man. I love his story uh, in in high school. You know, the gymnasium scene with Ned getting invited to the party, having the crush on the girl, uh, going on the field trip to D.C. I mean, you know, all that stuff that, you know, quote unquote, kids would do. Uh, I also got a kick out of him talking to the armor and getting to know Lucille and, you know, <laughs> building this rapport with this A.I. Uh, in the suit. What, what did you think, Bob, overall? Well, I can't touched on the whole New York thing where he's swinging from the buildings. They also had the scene where he was like out in the suburbs and there are no, <laughs> yeah. there are no tall buildings. So he has to figure out how to, how to get around and how to chase people. So. <laughs> but uh, no, I thought, you know, it, it was good. And again, you know, Tom Holland is the right, you know, he's older obviously than a high school kid, but he could pull yeah. it off better he than he, the other he's two. He's got the young yeah. look. And, uh, and, and he he can do a lot of that. Ever see those, those uh, YouTube videos of yeah. him oh, yeah. doing gymnastics and stuff? He can do all those flips and things. So a lot of the uh, mocap stuff is actually him doing it. Yeah. Where he's flipping you know, he, backflips and, you know, jumping and kicking off buildings and things. He, he could have used the spider mobile out in the suburbs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the GP7. That's right. <laughs> You know, and I, I also thought uh, Michael Keaton did a, a good job uh, in, in playing the vulture. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it overall, it was a fun film. So so then we get into, you know, all the stuff with Endgame and, and uh, well, all the Avengers stuff. Endgame, yeah. But um, and, and it was good stuff. I mean, you know, but um, the Far From Home um, kind of brings Peter back from, you know, the snap and Ned. And, and it, it just kind of worked out well that kind of his key people in high school got snapped as well. And so they, they get to start uh, what their senior year uh, over or all together uh, with a trip to uh, Europe. And uh, of course, it's uh, Peter Parker. And so mayhem ensues. Um, Mysterio's brought into the Marvel U. Um, some people loved that version of Mysterio. Some people not so much. Uh, Chief, what are your thoughts with regards to Far From Home? Uh, well, I'll just edit in all the segments from our Far From Home episode. But <laughs> just kidding. 
<laughs> no, I, I liked it. You know, um, I did like you know, it was Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. as uh, as Mysterio. I thought it was, uh, you know, I was glad that they didn't try to change him too much. That he's just this guy who relies on gimmicks and effects and things. He just he just has more advanced gimmicks and effects these days. But right. um, and it was also kind of cool how they brought all the quote ex Stark employees back right. and they flashed back to the different movies that they were you know where they were picked on or ignored or whatever and now they're all teamed up to to do in you know destroy Stark Enterprises and all that but um, and, and to make moolah and it was good that they blew up Happy Hogan's jet so uh, that does lessen <laughs> Peter's technology a little bit because that was kind of too convenient that he could just go in the back and just start designing a new suit and all that. Yeah. He's supposed to be sitting in his room with a needle and thread and trying to put it together. <laughs> Except for his web shooters. But And I'm glad yeah. that uh, they did not stick with the, uh, with the Sam Raimi organic web shooters. Yeah. You know, they yeah. did, they you did know, away I, with I those was, in the Garfield films and they kept them away at the, in the uh, Holland films. Yeah, Sam Raimi was a big fan of, of the Spider-Man comics and I I, I want to think it's a corporate decision that gave those organic web shooters. That was just kind of a weird call. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's true. But, see, you know, I think the MCU Spider-Man, you talk about him relying on Tony Stark, <clears throat> I think he's more based on the Ultimate Spider comic books, Ultimate Spider-Man comic books. Because in that, he is kind of mentored by Stark, and he is... Uh, Miles? No, no, Peter. At the end of Ultimate Spider-Man, Peter gets killed by the Green Goblin, and that's when Miles takes over. Oh, okay. But leading well, up yeah, to that... there you go. Leading up to that, yeah, he, he had a relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D. and with Tony Stark and all that, and yeah, so... That's just like in the movies. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it's funny because it really doesn't bug me. I'm like, all right, yeah, it's a cinematic version or whatever. What did you think, Karen? Are we are we talking far from, from still or far, 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 far from, from, from home. home? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I liked seeing Mysterio in his costume. I was really uh, pleased that they went with it because it's probably one of the more bizarre Spider-Man villains. Thank God yeah. for the bubble head. Look. Like yeah, iconic too. Fishbowl thing, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I thought it, you know, it was it was a fun movie. It was good. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where they go from there with the whole uh, identity reveal. Although I suspect the scrolls will come into play somehow. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just hope Memphisto doesn't come into play. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I know. Well, I guess the deal now is Marvel can do one more Spider-Man and have him appear in one other Marvel film and that's it for this contract Until, I guess they'll probably renegotiate but, but right now I think that's the premise they have to go under yeah well you know enjoy enjoy it while we can have it then well we'll see maybe they'll rework it you know it really seems like it would be to Sony's benefit to um, try to keep Spider-Man in the MCU yeah I would think so too I'm, I, I, I am shocked that Venom did as well as it did because to me Venom is is so much integrated in you know Peter Parker is part of that story 
Um, I didn't like the Venom movie, uh, yet, you know, what do I know? <laughs> well, yeah, it was this, the same way. I thought it was a pretty crappy movie. There we go again. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it did really well. So they're making another one. But it, it just astounds me that Sony is talking about doing like a Sinister Six movie without Spider-Man in it. It's sort of yeah. like, wh- what's the point? I don't understand. Well, you know, I'm not excited about that Morbius film at all. And and if it does big box office like Venom, I'm going to have to turn in my geek card because I don't know what popular is anymore then. So Yeah, I hear you. So we'll be taking auditions for a new commander after that? <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. Um I don't know. I, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, I'll tell you that the film was fun. It was funny. I, I liked that he was talking, you know, to the, the AI, he had the eyeglasses, you know, cause he didn't have the suit and he's on the trip. And, uh, you know, there's this kid that's like competing with him for, for Mary Jane or MJ's affections. Um, but the, the big reveal at the end of the film is, is the reintroduction of J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah. And I was so I, I mean, I, I I literally gasped, you know, and, and my wife had to look at me like, are you OK? And I'm like, you don't understand. This is Jonah Jameson. And, <laughs> you know. well, he hasn't been around since the Raimi films. He wasn't in Garfield exactly. films and he hasn't been in exactly. the MCU. So thank God they so, brought us the, the same actor back. Yeah. 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 Um, so and then Peter gets to drop the F-bomb and, and you know. Uh, the Ramones version of the Spider-Man theme or whatever it's like. So um, there, I, I will say there are these little like vignettes on the DVD or Blu-ray that kind of show Peter uh, videotaping uh, his trip to Germany in Civil War. Um, and those oh. are a lot of fun. If you haven't yeah. watched them, you should. It's, it's yeah. very smartly done. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so look, guys, this takes well, us to the well, end of. Hey, hey, oh, hey. yes, 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 yes. One more movie, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I I apologize. That's right. And no wonder. <laughs> Were we going to do like the Italian Spider-Man or the Hindu, the Bollywood Spider-Man or something? We're, we're at like a 14 hour episode <laughs> right now. So I think we're going <laughs> to. Well, look back, and we talked all about the Spider-Verse in another episode. I only bring up the Spider-Verse because I have come to feel that maybe it's my favorite Spider-Man movie. That is a very bold statement to make, my friend. And it's not crap. It has a lot of... I said, and it's not crap. It's not. It's certainly not crap. It's the opposite of crap. And it has a lot of heart. And I also think it's one of those movies that... uh, I don't know. It just it, it like exemplifies the everything about what Spider-Man is all about. You know, it's like it has all the different characters, but at its core, it's like this is really you know this is what Spider-Man is. And uh, I don't know. And it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to watch. Well, it's the first time that Spider-Man has died on the big screen. Well, that's true. So or a Spider-Man know, had, has died. That had like a huge impact on me. And I'll I'll tell you, I had little, I I won't say no because it was Spider-Man, but I had little interest in this film and I saw it late in its release. Um, 
I was blown away. Just visually, it was stunning. The music was great. Um, the acting, the voice acting, you had great actors in there lending their voice talent. Um, the the shock and the surprise of his uncle being the prowler and and you know how does he deal with that and you know his relationship with his father who's a cop and embarrassing him and his friends and you know ultimately you know uh, growing up a, a, a mm-hmm. bit you know um, I like that they had fun with the the pig uh, version of Spider Man and uh, Spider Ham yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of like Howard the Duck, you know, that like screwball, you know, kind of alternate uh, take on the Marvel U. Um, well, I, think the, I think the Blu-ray also has like a separate Spider-Ham episode, don't they? Yeah. Oh, oh. Uh, I have to check that out. Um, I will have to, because uh, I uh, full full disclosure, I didn't watch it again before the podcast. I've seen it like two or three times. Um. What would you think, Bob? That's curious, Karen. What's your favorite Spider-Man film, Bob? Well, like I said, I think Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is probably my favorite. You think the second one's your favorite? Yeah, still. But my favorite Spider-Man actor would be Tom Holland. But uh, no, Spider-Verse was was great. I mean, I loved it. And uh, it was definitely... Like I said, we spent a whole episode on it, but... um, if Sony was going to go off and do their own Spider-Mans, yeah, this is the way to do it. And again, you know, it's funny because we're talking about how we all were able to identify with Spy- with Peter Parker in high school and all his problems and things. Well, I yeah. think at our age now, we could probably identify with Peter Parker in the Spider-Verse more. We can still right. identify with him. He's getting a little punchy, and he's like, you know, not quite in shape, and he's, you know, try, he's more interested in you know other things other than web spinning, and but uh, right. I thought it was a brilliant way though too to introduce Miles Morales to the general public. Oh, definitely. And obviously, and I, and I going forward, he's going to be the focus of these Spider Verse movies. Right. You know, Peter might not right. even be in the Spider Verse movies at this point. Well, it, it's interesting to see that uh, Sony can do a Spider-Man film without Marvel's direct involvement. Well, I think as long uh, as it's animated, they can. If they, they can't do a, a live-action one, I don't think. Yeah. Now, whether they can put him in the Morbius movie or stick him in the new Venom or something, I don't know. Nah, I don't know. I guess we'll see. I, I will have to get back to you guys on what is my favorite Spider-Man. Right now, I'm leaning towards Homecoming. Um, although I do like uh, Dr. Octopus as well. And I do like the Spider-Verse, so I don't know. I'm more of a top five guy rather than a top one. Um, and that's okay. Larry doesn't very like Very decisive to for a commander. <laughs> Thank you, Walker. <laughs> okay, kids. Well, uh, this takes us to the end of our very packed 50th 5-0 podcast and none of this would be possible without you the listeners we want to thank you from honestly the bottom of my heart um i'll let everyone you know give a a thanks and a a shout out to the listeners before we uh get into uh our very special guest uh so let me kick it over to bob 
uh, any any words for the for the listeners, Bob? Oh, it's been a great ride so far, and you know, mm. everyone who's with us has been pretty dedicated. So, all I can say is spread the word, and hopefully, we'll have more people to thank in our hundredth episode. But <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I speak for the three of us when I say you know we want to keep doing this, and oh and yeah, it's a lot of fun, and you know, it's fun because we're talking to all you guys. Yes, Karen. I'm not going to say crap. No. Um, <laughs> no, I, I like you guys. You know, we, we just started doing this on a lark, and now it's turned into something that we really enjoy, and we enjoy the the interaction with the listeners. You know, I really it's, – it's great to, like, go on Twitter and, and have somebody comment about the episode or just – leave a comment to me like, Oh, Hey, have you guys thought about doing an episode on this? And it's like, right. Oh, Hey, that's a great idea. So, you know, it's fun to, to be doing this with YouTube, but then it's also really fun to have people, you know, interact with us, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or what have you, um, about the episodes and just know that, you know, people are enjoying it. And especially right now with the quarantine and everything, I've had a few people say to me, you know, oh, I took a walk and listened to the episode. And so just knowing that maybe in some small way we can alleviate some of the boredom and stuff that's going on. Um, Indeed. It's a good feeling. But uh, yeah, happy that we made it to 50 and hopefully we'll make it to a hundred and who knows where else. Oh, and I, I, I do have, I do have a confession to make. Oh, confession's good for uh -oh. the soul. You know, we are social distancing still on this episode on planet yes. eight. So, you know, Larry's out on the, in the command module and Karen's still up there in the satellite. I'm by myself here in the headquarters. So I did do this entire episode in my Spider-Man underoos. <laughs> well, I don't think I needed to know that. There will not be pictures on the blog site or the Facebook page. Definitely but. not. I, I, I appreciate your full disclosure. Oh. They're a little tight it, around the web shooter, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. And on that note... <laughs> Please take us to the next segment, Larry. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> quickly, quickly. Uh, typically... Uh, typically, this is a point in our podcast where we present our sensor sweep, uh, sharing with you some of the latest and greatest uh, products and our paraphernalia that have come across our desks. But being that it is, this is our big 5-0, 50th anniversary and Spider-Man episode, we are blessed and very fortunate to have had time to talk Spider-Man with none other than Jerry Conway. Uh, Jerry took over the comic book, Spider-Man comic book, uh, from Stan Lee uh, back in the 70s, and he was on that for a, a good bit of time. Um, let's go ahead and get straight into the interview, and you can hear everything that Jerry uh, had to say when we uh, talked with him uh, earlier. Take care of each other. Thanks again. And Bob, why don't you give us that interview? Um, Jerry took over the Spider-Man uh, character from uh, Stan Lee way back in the day. Um, it, it was uh, just, uh, you know, an honor to have Jerry with us today. And um, Jerry, straight away, we're going to um, kick it up to the satellite. Karen, what would you like to ask uh, our special guest, Jerry? Well, Jerry, uh, as Larry mentioned, you did take over Spider-Man uh, from Stan Lee back in 72, I believe. 
And I just wondered if you could kind of, before we dive right into uh, that, could you tell us a little bit about getting your start in comics and particularly Marvel Comics? Oh, sure. Well, I, I started very early. Uh, as most people know, I was uh, a teenager when I uh, sold my first uh, story to uh, an editor at DC named Murray Boltonoff. I was, uh, I think, still 15, wow. uh, just about to turn 16. Uh, it was the summer of, uh, I guess it was uh, 69, uh, might have been, <laughs> if it goes back far enough, you, you get pretty, pretty uh, uh, hazy. Uh, <laughs> and I, yeah, and I, I started hanging out with uh, comic book writers and artists, uh, you know, there was a social scene. Um, I met uh, Roy Thomas uh, at oh, a yeah. party. Yeah, yeah. At a party that uh, Archie Goodwin uh, threw, uh, there was a, uh, a regular gathering called First Friday <coughs> at Archie's house, uh, in which you know everybody could just sort of drop in on the first Friday of the month and hang out. And that's where I uh, uh, met a bunch of people uh, and did my first stories for Marvel in uh, I guess around 1970. Uh, some uh, supernatural stories for Tower of Shadows and Chamber of Secrets. Mm -hmm. uh, was given the Marvel writing test, uh, passed that, uh, I guess, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, was slowly raised up through the ranks uh, with, uh, you know, some of the, the low, what, what was then the lower level characters like Iron Man and uh, uh, Daredevil and Submariner and eventually uh, took over Thor, which was the, the f first book that I took from Stan. Uh, oh, that's and, cool. Uh, then, yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, shortly thereafter uh, was given uh, Spider-Man, uh, where I worked with John Romita as the lead on the book. Uh, he uh, helps, uh, you know, direct the stories and the storytelling and basically taught me how to, to do the book. Um, and from there, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So when you that, were, oh, go ahead, Larry. No, I was going to say that was really uh, a cool thing. You, you know, you're not going to see something like that happen in today's day and age. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah. No, I mean, back then, it was a very small group of people uh, and I, I actually kind of a self-selected group. Mm. Uh, we were the first generation People like myself, uh, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, uh, Bernie Wrightson, uh, you know, Mike Kaluta, uh, uh, writers and artists who wanted to work in comics. Mm -hmm. uh, the prior generation before us were people who fell into it because they they were um, you know waiting for their big break uh, to do a newspaper strip or. They were uh, commercial artists who weren't able to get enough commercial art uh, mm. assignments. Uh, and comic books were a paycheck for a lot of them. You know, many of them right. worked really hard at it, and many of them were very inspired and wanted to do it, like Kirby and uh, Ditko and, and uh, mm. Stan Lee. Um, but for the most part, we were the generation that said, hey, this is something we want to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so there was a collaborative sense, you know, among my, my group uh, that uh, was kind of unique. And, and since we were 
pushing our way in, and uh, the older generation was, um, in some cases, pushed out, you know, because they, they, they wanted things that the publisher didn't want to give them, like health insurance, <laughs> stuff, like, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, right. so they, they, they turned to us young punks. Uh, in the case of Marvel, uh, Marvel had been constrained in the number of titles they were allowed to publish because of their uh, distribution deal with DC. Mm -hmm. And I came along around the time that they started to expand. So as a result, you know, I had an opportunity that uh, other people wouldn't have had in similar circumstances. You know, Roy Roy was Stan's uh, right-hand man and was basically writing all the books that Stan wasn't willing or able to do by that point. And uh, then we had Gary Friedrich uh, as, as the backstop to Roy, but Gary wasn't uh, considered uh, to be at the, at the level of, of writing uh, capability that Roy wanted for these books. Uh, so he was searching around and I happened to be the most available <laughs> person <laughs> came wow. into it. Now today, you know, it's a superstar business. You know, everybody wants to be in it. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of competition. There's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, corporate control, control and oversight. Uh, layers of uh, business that you have to get through to uh, to break in. Uh, and a lot of people don't get in until they're in their mid thirties, forties. Oh, wow! And a lot of the best writers now uh, are people who would have been considered too old <laughs> to write comics. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I can remember Paul Lovitz at one point in the eighties saying, "Nobody over eight, the age of thirty is uh, should be writing comics," <laughs> wow. you know, which happened to coincide changed. with me being over the age of thirty. So I don't know. What you're <laughs> Well, that's great. Uh, I'm sorry, Karen. I didn't mean to, to bump into your... Uh, oh, no, your... no. Uh, I was just going to ask you, you know, when you came to Spider-Man, you were still a young man yourself when you were writing it. And I just wondered, what do you think it is about that Spider-Man, Peter Parker character that has made it such a, a long-lasting, beloved character? Mm. Um, well, it was interesting. I was just noticing on Twitter, uh, there's a little, it was a little conversation in my, in my Twitter feed, uh, about, uh, what, what's the correct age for Peter Parker? Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And you know, there was, there was some small controversy that some people thought that, uh, Steve Ditko, uh, one of the reasons he left the book was because, uh, Stan wanted to age Peter up to, graduate from college and, and Ditko didn't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a certain tr- amount of truth to the fact that Ditko didn't agree, but I don't think that was why he left the book. Uh, Ditko felt and Marv Wolfman felt, and I, and I feel too, uh, that the best age for Peter is, is, is as a teenager. Uh, yeah. Because that's his, that, that's when the, uh, the coolness of the character <laughs> is at a type. You know, mm-hmm. if, he's, if he's a guy pushing 30 or, uh, you know, a professional, uh, you know, married uh, and, and having a life, you know, the, an adult life, 
uh, he can't be a jackass. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But if he's, if he's 16, 17 years old, that uh, being a jackass is actually part of the process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's, that's the age at which you, you are trying on all kinds of personalities and, uh, uh, trying to be what you think you should be. Uh, and all that wonderful self doubt and, uh, exploration and charm of, of the teenage experience. Uh, that we can all identify with because we've all been there uh, is what makes him a, a, a special character. Uh, that's why, for me, the most interesting Spider-Man character of the last 10 years was Miles Morales because mm-hmm. Miles was Peter Parker as he used to be. Exactly. Right. The, right. The, yeah, the kid who's trying to find his way uh, and figure out what's what's what are you supposed to do, you know, when you've got these superpowers and how do you mm-hmm. act responsibly? Uh, what does that even mean? You know? So I was 19 when I took over the book. Um, oh, wow. Close enough. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, it seems so long. I was still sleeping yeah. on my parents' couch at that point. Um, but I was 19. <laughs> and so I, I actually totally identified with what Peter, who at that time was the same age was going through. Uh, you know, we were both young men, uh, both trying to figure out how to pay for our independent lives. Um, you know, earn a living, rent a, rent an apartment, uh, date somebody that we liked, uh, you know, all these kinds of things that were going on for Peter, I could totally identify with. And I was also young enough to remember and actually embody the insecurities uh, of being a teenager in an adult world. You know, I, I was literally Peter Parker in the sense of pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. You know, we have to remember that when he put on that full face mask, as far as the outside world knew, he was, an, he was a grown adult. Right, that's a you good know, point. He was, he was joking and making wisecracks and all of that, but just based on what he was capable of, he looked like an adult, but inside Mm -hmm. he was a kid, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. that was me. I was interacting with uh, people who were 10 years older than me, five years older than me. Many of my collaborators, uh, artists were, you know, 20 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And they were taking me as an adult when I was a kid, you know, so I could totally get the Peter Parker insecurity and mindset. Um, and I think that's the best age for the character. You know, uh, if, if Marvel could wave a magic wand and make Peter 16 again, uh, in the mainstream books, I think they'd be, uh, I think they'd be even more successful, you know, than uh, the character is now. Mm, That's a good point. So, uh, since you were relatively young when you uh, started, how much freedom did they actually give you with the character and with the stories or did the older colleagues kind of rein you in at times? Well, uh, they gave me an absurd amount of freedom. (laughs) 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 After, after John left the book as penciler, uh, I was the primary, uh, storyteller. Um, and Roy Thomas, who was my editor, uh, his, his editorial, uh, uh, oversight consisted of me telling him what villain I wanted to do that 
issue and what the general story idea was going to be, uh, you know, what the big event was for the, for the story. And then the rest of it was up to me. So um, with the exception of the, the death of Gwen Stacy, which was an idea that John had had before he left the book uh, as penciler, um, uh, pretty much everything that, that happened in that uh, title uh, w- was something that, that I uh, initiated, with the exception of, as I say, the death of Gwen Stacy and the, uh, the clone uh, storyline, although the, the clone storyline as it worked out was through my initiative. Uh, the, the main directive there was Stan wanted Gwen Stacy brought back somehow, uh, even though she was dead. <laughs> but, and the death, you know, I felt had to be uh, a real death. Um, so he said, you know, however you want to do it, you, and you can write her out of the book if you want to. I just want to see her brought back. And, uh, you know, after some uh, jokes, like, we'll bring her back as Graveyard Gwen. Uh, <laughs> we, we got down to uh, brass tacks, and I, I developed a, a clone idea as a way to have uh, Stan's cake and me eat it. So uh, that that's pretty much, you know, there was really no oversight to speak of. That's uh, cool. Yeah, but frightening. <laughs> when you, well, it was the 70s. Yeah. Well, see, right. it seems like everything's done by committee now, so I don't know if uh, anyone would have that chance at this point. Oh, gosh, sure. no, no. I mean, you got to remember, comics in the early 70s were uh, a dying business uh, where both publishers kind of thought that, that maybe they had five to ten years, you know, of, of survival. Uh, and, at, and at the best, we would just remain a, a moderately profitable small business. Uh, the idea that it would eventually become a, a corporate uh, behemoth uh, at both companies is just was just ludicrous. You know, the, the D.C. offices back in uh, the, the, the late 60s consisted of uh, like five, five, six offices in a in a half of a floor uh, you know, on, on, it was nothing and, and marble was basically three offices where one big one big bullpen and two small uh, and two offices one of which was split between uh, the head of production Saul Brodsky and, and uh, Roy Thomas the, the editor uh, wow. the other office was Sands that was it. Wow. <laughs> now but they never, you know, yeah. They didn't crazy. know they'd be the source of so much IP later on. Oh, yeah, God. exactly. No, I mean, they, they had a cartoon show. Both companies had uh, a couple of cartoon shows, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of toys. Uh, I mean, the origin of the Spider Mobile was that somebody came to Stan and offered to make a car toy if Stan would create a spider mobile. That was the other, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to ask about that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what possible rationale is there for a spider mobile? Uh, No, the rationale was they wanted to get the the profits from a, uh, a toy. Right. Um, (laughs) And, you know, eventually the company gets bought by a toy company. So, you know, (laughs) it's for a long time. Comics have been the tail that was wagged by the dog of some larger business. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it still is. You know, I mean, it's a weird thing. We create so much mythology, uh, you know, through through the stories that we tell. Yet we are not the profit center for either uh, company. Uh, movies, toys, games, uh, all of the ans- what would normally be considered ancillary. Uh, rights are the actual profit center for uh, the comic book business. Mm-hmm. The publishing is a, is at best a slightly better than break even proposition. Mm. Well, what do you think of the uh, the way they've portrayed Spider Man in the the new Marvel films? Oh, I think the MCU version of Spider Man is the best one. Mm-hmm. that they've done in live action. I mean, uh, Sam Raimi's was a very close second, and, and I think Spider-Man 2 is one of the best superhero movies, you know, that's ever been made. Oh, yeah. Uh, I completely agree. Let's face it, Tobey Maguire did not look like an actual teenager. <laughs> you know, casting Tom Holland was brilliant. Right. I mean, the, right. the, the, the kid just radiates youthful energy and, and silliness. Um, he embraces it, you know, in a way that that is perfect for Peter Parker, uh, and the and the young actors that they surround him him with, uh, you know, are totally credible as as uh, you know John Hughes style teens, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's brilliant. You know, that's and unfortunately, what's going to happen, you know, as we know, is that uh, just the natural course of things, Tom Holland will get older. And uh, you're going to have to make Peter older, and eventually the same problems will pop up, you know, uh, you know, and uh, because they're not going to reboot Peter Parker, but right, you know, in the MCU. So at some point in the next five years, you're going to see a older Peter Parker. Uh, certainly, by Spider-Man Three, he's going to obviously be older. Uh, and if there ever is a Spider-Man four, uh, you know, it would be his mid mid to late twenties. Right. Well, I think if they think- if they hold back from bringing in a, a Miles Morales, then they could always, you know, introduce yeah, him could. when Holland gets a little too old, and then yeah, they absolutely. still have the and youth. I, and maybe that's the long range plan. I mean, it's hard to know because. This is a weird situation where the MCU and uh, the, the Spider-Man rights are two different studios, mm-hmm. uh, but they have to be thinking strategically uh, for the long term. Because the best age for for a Spider-Man character is a, is a teenager. Um, you know, after that, it's just another superhero with powers. Uh, you know, a bit of a sad sack guy, but you start feeling like by your mid twenties, you should be short, start getting this shit together. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody. I know, but, but you know, it, it right. becomes sad after a while, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Like in the real world, uh, you know, Peter Parker uh, acting like a teenager, you know, at, at 30 is kind of really <laughs> kind of sad, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, Hey, Jerry, I had a, a kind of a two-part question. I wanted to know, what was your personal favorite Spider-Man story you've written versus your favorite Spider-Man story that you've read as a fan? Ah, uh, well, 
I think the most accomplished story I've done was the uh, uh, death of Gwen Stacy in terms of uh, hopefully nailing all the aspects that that uh, you want to achieve in a story. Mm, um, that's a good one. One of one of my favorite stories, though, was the the uh, marriage of Aunt May and Doc Ock uh, <laughs> because yeah. it's just so perfectly silly. Right, <laughs> and, and one of one of I don't know because I'm known for these kind of dark the, the, the dark stories like Death of Gwen Stacy. Um, my real, but my real interest has always been the absurd comic book story. You know, I've always loved the silliness. That's why I created Firestorm and made him such a uh, a deliriously silly character. Um, uh-huh. I, I like that. You know, I like absurd stories. So the the my uncle, my enemy. Uh, story, you know, with this with this ring Ivy web. I don't know. I mean, I just love. I remember that so, cover. Yeah, it's such a it's such a delightful cover. Um, in terms of my own favorite Spider-Man story, I think uh, without question, it's the Master Planner uh, uh, arc that Stan and uh, Steve did uh, mm. when uh, way back in the early thirties. Uh, 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 issues 30s um, when Peter is searching for the antidote for his Ill- aunt's illness and oh. Dr. Octopus is uh, preventing him from getting it and he's trapped beneath you know that uh, uh, right. fallen wreckage I mean that to me mm-hmm. just sort of summed up everything that was was great about that character in the early days uh, yeah that's you true know, yeah it's just a such a phenomenal story they tried to do that scene in uh, was right. it Spider-Man: Homecoming? I felt yeah. they didn't quite capture it, but but yeah, it's yeah. such a great scene where he lifts all the wreckage off. Right. Yeah, and the reason the reason they couldn't quite capture it, I think, is because the stakes were not the same. You know, right. mm-hmm. he he wasn't he wasn't fighting hopeless odds to rescue his aunt out of a sense mm-hmm. of responsibility. Right. Um, you know, so it's tough. You know, you 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 need that emotional component, uh, and finding the emotional component for, for a superhero movie is, I think, the hardest part. You know, we can always get the special effects, the great action, the uh, uh, the twists, the turns, the villain, but the emotional stakes have to be there, and mm-hmm. it's very hard for most superhero movies to actually accomplish that. Um, and comics, you know, for w- whatever their strengths or, or flaws, I mean, the best comics really do address the emotional stakes um, in a way that uh, we, we haven't always seen in, in the films. That's very true. Well, I think it's also an advantage when you have a book that's coming out monthly or in some cases at the mm-hmm. peak, twice a month, or I think Spider-Man had a, a book every week for a while. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, versus a movie which comes out every two, three years, it's hard to... Well, yeah, uh, but, you can st- but you can still address, you can still, I mean, the problem for Spider-Man Homecoming was that there were all the other Spider-Man movies before it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to create your own new reality and give it some impact. Uh, and I, I think that they didn't want to make it too emotionally weighty uh, because it's, you know, that had been the, 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 remember the last previous Spider-Man movie was the one where Gwen Stacy dies and 
um, it's just sort of thrown in your face. You know, for, mm-hmm. you know, and it was kind of a last minute. Minutes and then yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, crap. Exactly. Uh. So, yeah, that was a, a botched uh, uh, story. Um, and there was no emotional catharsis from that. So you kind of had to step away. Uh, for for homecoming, you, you had to reduce the stakes, uh, you know, and, and make it a little more lighthearted and, and pure fun. Uh, but I mean, Endgame and um, uh, Infinity War, you know, did do did show emotional stakes. I, I don't think there's been a better emotional moment in a Marvel MCU moment than uh, than when Captain America, you know, at the end of Infinity War goes, oh God. I mean, oh, yeah. still, you know, just Chilling. chills. Yeah, because, you know, the feeling of failure, the feeling of loss, uh, uh, the, the sense of, of despair, that's comics. You know, that was a comic book moment. You know, that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the payoff emotionally with uh, the death of Tony Stark at the end of Endgame. Uh, you know, going out bravely, you know, uh, doing his, doing what he had to do. And the catharsis that they allowed for the morning afterwards, uh, just brilliant. You know, I mean, that's that that was good, solid emotional storytelling. Uh, you know, we all remember the big scenes, but but really, who who really gives a crap? You know, the real moment for both of those films were those those small personal moments of you know Captain America's despair and Tony's heroism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, great perfect bookmarks uh, or bookends. Uh, so, yeah, well, uh, uh, Tony's death basically carried all the way through uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah, yeah. And it allowed the emotional resonance. I mean, that was one of the reasons that I disagreed with Stan's uh, desire to bring uh, uh, Gwen back was that there has to be emotional consequence to something that is as devastating to the main character. And it has to play out over many months you know it can't just be oh you know like i was just i just retweeted uh or tweeted this this uh passage from uh, a thor comic uh in which jane foster gets godlike powers and then immediately uh is sent back to earth you know and and Two pages later, Thor meets Sif. <laughs> it's like, ah, we're, yeah, oh, that, that, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. You can't do that. You know, you right. you cannot just wave your hand and and this this is over. It has to have resonance, uh, and that was what was so great about uh, you know back to home was that uh, far from home uh, was that you uh, you play out. You know the, the the consequences of, of a major character's uh, loss. Um, it's it's good storytelling. It's uh, right. it's powerful. Well, Jerry, uh, you know uh, we uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Um, this is our fiftieth episode, our fiftieth podcast, and I swear to you, I could talk the the next fifty podcasts solely with you. <laughs> Um, we appreciate well, you coming on the show. Congratulations on your 50. Yeah. Ah, right. well, thank you. Is, are you a weekly show or uh, We're monthly. How does this work? Well, twice a month. Twice yeah. a month. Twice a month. Wow. twice a month. So this has been going on for a couple of years now. Congratulations. Yep. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank you. 
Jerry, you know, we'd, we'd appreciate you if you could come back on the show at some point in the future. Absolutely. I will have to do a um, Thor episode. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> appreciate you being on the show and, and, you know, honestly, thank you for everything that you've contributed to the character of Spider-Man, Peter Parker, it, you know, um, the stories that you had with Molten Man, Hammerhead, uh, Tarantula, you know, <laughs> the Punisher, all that, the Punisher. Yeah, I mean, the list just goes. We didn't on even talk about Punisher. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've definitely been a lucky guy because I, I had an opportunity to play with, in, with some fabulous uh, playgrounds. You know, and and we're all better for it. Um, So, again, thank you. Take care of yourself and um, look forward to talking to you again real soon. All right. Stay healthy, guys. Thank you. you. Bye bye. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.
Wallop and web snappers. What was that?